Okay, well, uh, I think we should get started. Um, we're, uh, we're running a few minutes late from the, from the previous panel. I'll try to keep this on track as much as I can. Um, we have, once again, four, uh, four excellent speakers. There is uh, uh, Jakub Borotinsky from the European Commission, uh, Mark Smitham, who is just on his way to the, uh, to the dais. Uh, we have Aiden Ryan, um, and uh, Smitham is from uh, Microsoft, a company that's been very active in a number of uh, industry initiatives. Uh, we have Aiden Ryan from ENISA, and we have uh, Professor George Christou uh, at the uh, University of Warwick. So uh, again, a, a very fine panel. Uh, I am pleased to announce uh, that we have something a bit distinctive uh, that we've held through all three of the uh, sessions without particularly having planned it. There's an old saying that says, power corrupts, PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Uh, this is going to be yet another PowerPoint-free session, which I think for these short presentations is not a bad thing. So uh, with that said, uh, I will uh, turn the floor over to Jakob Borutinsky of, of the Commission uh, on a Tackling Cybersecurity Challenges session uh, presentation, and uh, you can tell us perhaps a bit about how we're tackling them. Over to you. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. It's a great pleasure to be here. I would rather tend to be short because I hope we will have a chance for, for, for some questions and comments from your side. Um, I had really a, a distinct privilege to basically accompany or be part of the EU developments on, on, on cybersecurity more broadly and uh, I, I myself somehow indeed kind of quite surprised by, by, by the speed and, and let's say the magnitude of how it advanced on, on, on the policy agenda. Um, at the same time, you know, it's, it, cons it consistently, consistently remains a sort of a kind of a construction site that is not necessarily, you know, it is on the one hand comprehensive, it touches on a lot of different uh, dimensions, but, but clearly, you know, it, 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 it's constantly a work in progress. So I would say equally uh, two perspectives of half glass full sorry, glass half full or glass half empty, you know, remain valid. Of course, as an official, I'm always focusing on glass half full, but on the other hand, of course, we always see the things ahead of us. Now, what we have seen actually is that, uh, uh, you know, we have the cybersecurity strategy of 2013, which in a way still remains a, a valid point of reference. It was really a first attempt to, to bring a, con a sort of a common narrative, you know, just look, look at cybersecurity perspective from, from, from different silos. Not that we have been overcome the silos. I think it's inevitable because basically it's a, such a multifaceted challenge. There is a reason why, you know, whenever I get a question, so can you invite ministers to discuss cybersecurity? I, I, I'm, I'm responding, who? Who are the ministers for cybersecurity, you know? Because the, for the time being, we have a, a very diverse and wide plethora of, 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 of agencies and, and ministries at the national level that deal with cybersecurity, ranging from economy, telecom, defense, interior, you name it. Now, uh, what uh, I think is really a, a, a super important, and it, uh, this is, and indeed this, the date is approaching of the transposition of the NIS directive. Uh, this is, as you know, the first cybersecurity legislation in Europe. It is, its value, it's not that this is such a, you know, a highly advanced and sophisticated piece of legislation, but actually this is a piece of legislation that aims to achieve what is in a way one of fundamental challenges and objectives that is basically to have a sort of a common baseline in Europe. 
following the years of, let's say, different soft measures, the analysis of the Commission back five, six years ago was that we have actually huge, huge differences in terms of resilience, in terms of preparedness, in terms of capacities at national level. So, in a way, one of the extremely important objectives of the NIS Directive was indeed to make sure that there is certain basic toolbox that every member state has at its disposal, being it competent authorities, CSERT, or, or, or the national strategy. Secondly, you know, what was essential there was actually to make sure that certain critical component of, 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 of economy, the key companies, do follow legal obligations in, with respect to, to cybersecurity. Uh, and thirdly, of course, the, the fact that this uh, directive laid foundations for, for cooperation between member states, you know, and cooperation that is never like coming in one go, it's always kind of a long process, but again, I can see from a practical point of view that the fact that we have this formal structure established by the directive uh, is, <clears throat> uh, is actually making a qualitative difference. Uh, the challenge obviously is huge because this is a directive, the room of uh, discretion that member states got is quite vast. Uh, so I, I really expect this next two, three years would be a very useful and a very interesting kind of test of how actually the political commitment of, let's say, all member states is, is basically translating, uh, translating in practice. We definitely would need also a very strong cooperation within industry to make things happen. The, uh, so this, is, this was and remains a very important building block and on purpose I'm actually devoting so much attention to this because there is sometimes a tendency just to speak about things that are new, you know, so NIS Directive in a way is not so new, the proposal was made uh, five years ago, but uh, you know, this is, this is really the, the, the foundation. Now the Cybersecurity Act of last year can be seen indeed as a reflection of this trend of, of again, covering different part of the, of the needs that we have in the, in, with respect to, to cybersecurity. So on the one hand, as you know, we have a, uh, the, 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 the Cybersecurity Act is, devoting to, is devoted to making basically a NISA, uh, uh, an agency that is uh, more, uh, that is stronger, that basically is more, has more capacities, that is basically better fit for for, for the challenges that we have. Um, again, Aiden is here, so I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure he may wish to, to, to bring his perspective uh, on, on how, how, you know, how it's also being received by, 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 by the team um, in Greece, uh, by the team of, of Anissa. I must say that the challenge that we have always had is not gone. I mean, this very, very delicate and sensitive interplay how much, uh, you know, uh, how much responsibilities member states have for themselves and how much openness and readiness is to, to basically delegate some response, not, not even delegate, but just to give some responsibilities that could be complementary to national action. So that remains always a challenge, given the fact that cybersecurity is also very closely intertwined with issues of national security, even though, of course, our mandate to act is, uh, at the European level is very much related to the fact that we are talking about fundamental societal economic dimensions that is essential for the, for the functioning of the single market. The second um, uh, leg of the Cybersecurity Act uh, re relates to cybersecurity certification. 
And I think this is, an, in a way, a reflection of, of an important change that we are seeing now, in a way also maybe a certain maturity or increasing maturity of this policy that we have realized, you know, that in this area, which is, of course, uh, um, a symbol of, of kind of innovation and fast pace, nevertheless, you know, there is a need for more kind of rules and, 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 and tools that are being used in other parts of, of, of the market. In that sense, certification, which gives, <coughs> certain, in a way, more power to a user, to consumer, uh, gives more information, is for us, uh, again, not as tool, a silver bullet, but just yet another tool that can contribute to the higher degree of cybersecurity. I will not kind of go why, because I think this is the reasons why we, we, we need cybersecurity certification are not different why we may need certification in other areas uh, of the market. Um, maybe the last, uh, so I would be happy, of course, to engage the discussing things in more detail, but I mean, our approach was that this is a first step on certification. The, this is super complex technically issue that is also we took this kind of two-step approach. Now we are trying to agree, or not just, I think that the, the vacancy negotiations goes quite well, on basically a, a governance framework, which then would allow basically creation of specific schemes, individual schemes, in principle voluntary certification schemes uh, in the future, involving basically all, all, all stakeholders, the, the industry, member states, etc. The NISA is going to play a very important part uh, in this process. Um, so, last but not least, uh, I want to also to mention the initiative that has been announced in the joint communication of last year of creating a European Cybersecurity Research and Competence Centre, as well as the network of competence centres, which very much stems from this realisation that basically if Europe wants to, uh, to remain competitive, to, to, to be a place where innovative uh, competitive cybersecurity product and solutions are being developed, we need to do much more in terms of pooling knowledge, expertise and resources. And that's basically the, the idea behind the center. And uh, again, you will also be probably not surprised when you will see that in the proposals of, of the Commission for the next financial framework, cybersecurity will feature prominently. So, as I said, it is sort of, sort of a, a construction site, but I definitely see a, a quite, quite, quite significant progress. And what well, I'm also happy that with also, in a way, the budget decisions that will be taken regarding the, the next uh, multi-annual financial framework with the implementation of the NIS directive, we are also coming to a situation when all those things are kind of tested in practice, you know, so, so that, that, that I think would be in a way helpful and healthy. We move beyond the stage of just saying cybersecurity is important and having all kind of lofty slogans in every single speech, but this is really the time when, when basically we would be in a, collectively in the European Union would be able to, to kind of walk the talk and, and, and demonstrate that things are changing actually in practice on the ground. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Borotinsky. And so, in the previous panel, we talked about how Mr. Ansip likes to eat the salami one slice at a time. Uh, so here there have been several slices. We're now into, in, into one or two new ones. Good. Well, with that, why don't we uh, hand over to Mark Smith. And your, your company, again, has been very active in a number of initiatives. And I'd be interested in both those and in your general views on where we stand and what should be done. Thanks, um, first of all, for the opportunity to um, speak on uh, and participate in this event. Uh, the uh, 
importance for us um, is to be able to articulate the role of the private sector um, in improving the overall level of cyber security, uh, not just uh, for individual citizens um, or for larger companies, um, and not just across Europe, but um, overall. Um, I like a few of the words that um, Mr. Borotinsky has already mentioned, um, the idea of cooperation um, and a collective approach. Um, that's why Microsoft is uh, so positive uh, around the uh, Network and Information Security Directive, the way that this particular pr uh, proposal um, has enabled individual member states to set up infrastructures or, or internal governance and organisations that uh, under certain uh, situations in certain regions n n was never there but also the way that uh, it is facilitating coordination between all of those different member states. So it's not just an idea of uh, uh, increasing the capability in individual locations that uh, didn't have it, but also to coordinate between them. The reason why that's um, so fundamentally important, um, uh, and the idea of cooperation between member states, um, is uh, it's still worth repeating, um, uh, nice... Um, headlines that often get repeated in speeches um, of this nature, uh, is the idea that cyber um, attacks uh, do cross borders quite freely. And so it's not a case of approaching things from a national perspective. Um, it, it is a continuing challenge uh, for how to address this collectively based on different resources. And that's the reason why the role of the private sector is also um, fundamentally important in this as well. Um, the landscape has changed quite significantly. Um, uh, compared to um, 2012 strategy or the original proposals of the uh, NIST directive. Uh, and where um, we're seeing things change now uh, is that cyber attacks are hitting individual citizens on private infrastructure in peacetime. Now, this is not something that was necessarily the case um, uh, a, a longer time ago. The main targets were um, nation states and individual um, organisations rather than private sector companies. Um, and the facilities uh, available to Microsoft uh, to identify these issues and to be able to respond shouldn't necessarily uh, be limited purely to um, us as an enterprise. It's much Im more important, again, to go back to the point about collective response and cooperation. It's not just between member states and individual um, uh, competent authorities. It's also making use of um, notification um, and information sharing between businesses and, and also uh, government organisations as well. So uh, from our perspective, the, the, it leads directly into the role um, that ENISA um, uh, can potentially play in future. Um, when there are a lot of things um, uh, that are happening, the cyber attacks, uh, they're being notified to the company. Um, and it has an economic impact to the individuals, but also to the company as well. Uh, it, it just as uh, coordination and cooperation when there is an incident or a cyber attack, um, uh, it's equally valid to highlight cooperation and coordination when somebody identifies vulnerabilities in a particular um, website or service or application. Um, different countries approach this from different perspectives. Uh, there are three uh, examples of national approaches inside Europe, but even they are ever so slightly different. So there is an opportunity with the Cybersecurity Act and trying to define the role of ANISA 
of where ENISA can go further with that cooperation and uh, coordination and guidance role that it has found itself um, to be so successful in the past can do more in future to handle guidance for coordinated vulnerability disclosure across Europe. Um, it, it's not just about Europe, though. Um, the um, important factor to consider um, if we are talking about cross-border, it's not just about um, the digital single market. In Europe, there are quite a lot of approaches uh, across the world where Europe can be seen as a leader. However, if uh, Europe leads and it's not recognised outside Europe, then it shuts down the market for businesses inside Europe to be able to play in other markets across the world. So, for example, um, if there is a European approach which is not recognised in China, it means the European companies cannot meet the needs of the Chinese market. For example, just an example. It might seem strange that somebody that works for an American company makes this point. However, from Microsoft's perspective, we are talking about um, our success is built on making individuals, individual citizens, small organisations and large companies and enterprises more productive. And they can only do that when they're um, involved in a larger supply chain. It's not just about us providing a product, it's us providing a product or a service where SMEs are able to become more productive and do their work. So therefore, we don't want to see an approach that would necessarily limit the scope and economic development and opportunity of those um, smaller organisations when they could be making, uh, 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 making the most of opportunities uh, across Europe, but also outside Europe as well. So one of the things you will hear um, from Microsoft quite a lot is the idea of um, in cyber security certification frameworks, it's best if they can uh, take the approach of international globally recognised standards as opposed to necessarily in reinventing the wheel um, in a way which is not necessarily recognised um, outside Europe. Um, and the last thing that is worthwhile mentioning um, from the point of view of um, the private sector um, is we do recognise that we ourselves can do more. It's not just about leaning on uh, EU institutions to suggest, oh, coordinated vulnerability disclosure or certification and standards can't be done by business, therefore um, uh, the EU institutions and national competent authorities have to step up and, uh, in order to improve cyber security. We recognise that we have a, a significant investment uh, and capability ourselves. Um, uh, we invest over a billion US dollars a year in cyber security uh, purely on defence. We have over 3,000 security engineers dedicated to protecting our systems and software. But we recognise we can do more. We can go further. Uh, the latest um, uh, piece uh, that demonstrates this, um, which is worth highlighting, is uh, uh, last week um, we announced the launch of the Tech Accord with over 30 companies signing up to four principles to demonstrate that they commit to not allowing their systems and services to be abused for cyber attacks to facilitate that type of thing. Um, to complement the um, tech accord, there's also, um, because that's talking about companies, there's also an opportunity for us to demonstrate how we can help um, political parties, um, uh, democratic services in national administrations, even local administrations, to try and defend themselves um, against uh, malicious or um, 
necessarily um, uh, malicious influence that can affect the outcomes of democratic processes. And therefore, uh, last week we uh, also announced a programme for defending democracy, um, which sounds a bit unusual uh, coming from Microsoft. Just like the Digital Geneva Convention, we are an international business. We are not in the process of inventing legislation. However, um, it's a programme to help facilitate um, the um, recognition uh, and uh, education, awareness and demonstration of how um, these uh, certain organisations responsible for democratic processes can be a target for information warfare. And we've already seen a couple of good examples of that, potentially in the US and potentially in the UK with a referendum. We want to see what Microsoft can do in order to avoid the sort of, this sort of thing being repeated because technology is so embedded in everybody's day-to-day -day and also professional lives, and therefore these are being used by political campaigns. They need to know that not just the tools are being defended, because that's our commitment, in order to uh, make sure that our systems and services are secure, but also they need to understand how these services can be used in order for them to um, certainly defend uh, democracy um, as robustly as possible. So that's the position of Microsoft, and that's where we can see there's more opportunity to go even further uh, to improve cybersecurity in general. Thanks. Thank you, Mark, and um, my compliments. Those are very interesting programs. Uh, good. Well, why don't we move along now to Anissa and to Aiden Ryan. Um, uh, why don't we just pass on to you comments later. Okay, thank you, Scott, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak here today. Firstly, I'd just like to give a little bit of background about ANISA. Uh, ANISA was founded uh, back in 2004 pursuant to an EU regulation. It's a small agency by European standards. It has 84 people, and it is located in Greece. The agency, in effect, acts as a centre of network and information security expertise. It primarily serves EU institutions and the member states. And some of the activities that, that ANISA are involved in is helping member states implementing um, relevant legislation in the area of cyber security, and particularly in the context of the NIS directive um, work to do with uh, critical infrastructure and I'll come back to that later. Uh, Micro the Microsoft's uh, mark there mentioned that, that we have a, an important coordination role. We spend a lot of time bringing together the uh, key stakeholders, uh, banging heads together, trying to identify what the risks are up and coming, and to try and identify solutions to uh, address these risks. In September 27, as Jakob said, the Commission proposed a draft legislation for a stronger and better resourced agency. In summary, it's proposing to double the uh, number of posts and the budget for the agency. And this is in the middle of the legislative co-decision process at the moment, so um, I'm limited in, in, in what can uh, be said about it, and we have to have let the legislative process take its due course. Some of the particular uh, activities that ANISA is well known, um, we organise uh, cyber exercises across all member states. Um, the last one we had over 1,000 participants. We publish an annual threat landscape report, 
which identifies the latest threats and trends. Um, the CSEARCH group, one of the requirements of the NIS directive is that each member states set up a computer security instant response team and ANISA acts as the secretary of it. And also from the NIS directive, there's a cooperation group, uh, which again, ANISA supports the commission in their work there. We hold various thematic workshops. I'd advise you keep an eye on our website, the programs like annual privacy, smart cities, and so on uh, across Europe. So moving on uh, from ANISA, just to set the scene of, of where we are and, and, and some of the challenges that, that, that are facing us. We all accept we're, we're living in, uh, with the consequences of, of the digital revolution. But I would suggest that this revolution is only partly over and there is a, a lot more to come down the tracks. We're interested in protecting our information from a personal data perspective and also from an intellectual property perspective. We're living with new disruptive business models such as the blockchain, artificial intelligence, anything as a service that are raising new challenges from a cybersecurity perspective. One of the speakers mentioned earlier we're living in a borderless world. So this is creating its own legal challenges and technical challenges. And more and more we're seeing member states and um, sovereign countries introducing uh, legislation with extraterritorial effect because we're all living in a situation where we don't know where our data is lying and uh, we don't necessarily have immediate uh, legislative effect and the solution will involve cooperation with other member states and extraterritorial legal support. So some of the technologies that we're focusing on at the moment include the likes of big data, the collection, storage, effects of artificial intelligence as this big data is processed. We have the sensors and actuators revolution, the Internet of Things, they expect 20 billion by, 20, by 2020 devices to be connected and active. We have Industry 4.0, and then what I call Smart X, smart airports, smart cities, smart everything. Cloud computing has been around for a while. Uh, we have introduced some guidelines and reports to assist on improving security in, in the cloud infrastructure. We're looking at increasing performance of mobile devices and networks, uh, particularly in the context of, of 5G. And finally, we're looking at unified communications through common interfaces uh, where we no longer distinguish a separate piece of infrastructure for our telecommunications and for our, our services. And this is possibly introducing uh, a greater risk of a single point of failure. Just to say a few words to uh, maybe help the debate and, and discussion is the, the concept of European digital sovereignty. Security and our, our devices um, are, are critical to the services. And it has been reported and written up quite extensively that European is seen as a supply push market rather than a demand market. Most of the products, or not most, but many of the products we use every day come from outside the EU. And the question has to be asked, why are, are more of these products not generated, developed, and produced in the EU? Many of the actors, many of our platforms, similarly, are based outside the EU, and again, that brings its own challenges. So we have a highly complex supply system, and this is an issue we need to study, understand the effects of, and be able to address. And this complexity adds and increases 
the whole aspect of cyber security from both the software and hardware perspective. So what do we need to do? What is the challenge? I think at the, the highest level is building security means building trust. The NIS directive has gone a long way. We're going to see the transposition date pass in May. It involves the identification of operators of essential service, digital service providers, the key players in our economy that will need to make sure that we have the necessary and appropriate level of capacity, the appropriate level of cooperation, and a particular focus on critical infrastructure. Similarly, in Europe, we have the big program of the Horizon 2020 with its research and development, which is, is, uh, should help and uh, help the security market in Europe develop. So much is done, but certainly much more needs to be done. We need to grow the IT security investment in Europe. This involves adding value. It also involves jobs. And cybersecurity is one of those topics, I believe, that SMEs can actively participate. You don't have to be a global player to get into this space. We have some very good European uh, SMEs who are contributing to uh, cybersecurity in a way that is um, ideal for export and for future potential. Just one figure that we uh, worked on together with McKinsey's, and it is a statistic that said if we matched US spend per GDP, the ratio in Europe would involve a growth of about 7 billion euro. So with those comments, I'll conclude. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Aiden. So I think what I heard was something of an echo of uh, Mr. Borotinsky's comment that there's much done, but also much that needs to be done. Uh, one, uh, one question I'd toss out, if I might. Um, it, it seems to me, uh, when, I, uh, when I last was uh, more directly involved with ANISA, I, I uh, led the study for the Parliament when ANISA was up for a recharter in 2012. The uh, study was probably 2012, yeah, yeah, the recharter yeah. 2013. And um, at the time, I know there had been a, a historical resistance to giving ANISA any, any responsibilities that remotely approached operational responsibilities. It seems to me that that was already starting to break down at the time, and it seems to be moving a step further. Uh, is there much done and still much to be done, or, or, or do, do the latest revisions actually put you more squarely into the operational loop? Okay, maybe to, just to make a, a, a first comment um, from, from maybe a legal perspective in that ANISA is here to serve the, the member states. And the member states have their sovereign responsibility, and European legislation is meant to kick in at when there is a subsidiarity principle is involved. So I think a lot of maturity has taken place in the meantime. The level of coordination, the level of trust um, has increased, and uh, we are now facilitating the member states much more uh, in sharing information, and I think the relationship has, has, has grown stronger. And I think the key principle is to ensure better coordination. And once ANISA can fit into that um, path, I think we're, we're going in the right direction to, to, to meet the challenges. Thank you for that. And with that, I'd like to hand off to uh, Professor Christou. I had asked him to speak last because I thought as an academic it would give him an opportunity not only to present his views but also to respond to what he had heard. And yes. with that, over to you. 
thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the invitation to speak. Uh, I've been given the simple task of <laughs> summarising uh, the perspectives, uh, or not so simple task, given the complexity that we've, uh, we've just heard about. So uh, what I want to try and do is, is perhaps just touch on uh, a few of the points um, in terms of the revised cybersecurity strategy. I mean, agree completely uh, in terms of when I started looking at cybersecurity in the European Union in 2011, I mean, we didn't, didn't even have a strategy. And since then, I think things have evolved um, positively. Um, so, so I will try and focus on the half full, but also perhaps the half empty, just to give some balance. Um, so <clears throat> what are the aims of the digital single market in terms of cybersecurity? Well, the two main aims are to create a more resilient Europe. Uh, we haven't really heard that much about resilience, but it's, it's a critical concept that ran through the original cybersecurity strategy and runs through the revised uh, cybersecurity strategy, as does deterrence and defense. Uh, I think the more relevant parts are around resilience and around uh, deterrence uh, in this case. Um, so I want to start off with that in the sense of I guess as an academic, I will touch, touch upon key concepts. Um, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about how resilience is, is actually conceived as a strategic concept in, in, in the actual strategy uh, itself. Um, I think rightly so. I think, I think there's obviously been some definition already uh, of what it, what it is, this uh, you know, holistic notion of resilience, embracing the whole of society, including business, citizens, et cetera, et cetera. But I think... In practical terms, um, I'd like to hear more about how that sort of resilience is going to be achieved. So one thing we haven't talked about is perhaps uh, digital skills. We heard lots about it previously. Uh, one of the cornerstones of the revised strategy is, is around trying to generate uh, or fill that uh, gap uh, that we all know uh, is coming in terms of uh, what we need and what is actually out there. So there's all sorts of stats uh, out there in terms of what that gap will be, uh, depending on, on what you read. Um, in Europe, or in the a report pr produced by the Commission, uh, the projected gap was 335,000. Uh, another independent report suggests 1.5 million. I'm, I'm sure the figure is somewhere in between. Uh, the point is, I guess, um, how ambitious can the EU be in terms of digital skills, given that it hasn't actually got a mandate? Um, so there are lots of initiatives, um, but how will that work in terms of pulling those initiatives together, incentivizing member states? This is a short-term problem. A lot of the initiatives are very positive. Uh, we've got the uh, Digital Skills and Jobs Coalition uh, network that sits at the center of those. Uh, but there's a huge issue around resourcing that. There's a huge issue about who will participate. Um, there isn't a dedicated budget. I hope in the next negotiation that there will. But at the minute, the resource for that comes from various budgets, the Regional Development Fund, Youth Employment Initiatives, ESF, etc., etc., etc. How much will be dedicated to digital skills, which I think is one of the critical uh, issues. Um, that, that we face. Um, and also in terms of awareness, um, how do we communicate uh, the importance of this to national audiences? Again, there are some very positive initiatives in doing this, but, but how do we get to that 44% that we heard before that are actually digitally uh, illiterate first before they understand the complexities also of cybersecurity? Um, 
The second question, I guess, is, is around governance. Again, we, I think all morning we heard about what type of regulatory regime works, what type of governance works. Um, now, I'm not arguing for or against this, but the, the certification scheme is going to be voluntary. Um, and I'm sure there's an evidence base for that, and there's been a push for that voluntary uh, 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 mode of governance uh, within this. The question I ask is, I guess, given that the rationale of the NIST was to move to a mandatory base, precisely because voluntary arrangements hadn't worked in the past, um, is this a missed opportunity with regards to actually putting the EU on the map with regards to both certification in Europe, but also the broader question uh, that was raised by Mark uh, about the global viability of these. Um, what will be the incentive uh, of the various businesses and countries buying into this certification scheme, um, given its voluntary nature? I'd like to hear comments on that. I'm, I haven't got any you know, definitive answers, but it strikes me as one of the issues in the medium term that might have to be um, reflected on uh, in terms of implementation and take up uh, of this sort of certification framework uh, as it's rolled as it's rolled out um, on the NIST itself again very positive in terms of um, putting into place institutions standards uh, norms of behavior I guess in member states uh, that didn't exist uh, in all member states so we're trying to address this fragmentation problem I guess this this diversity uh, and different maturity levels uh, in, in Europe. Um, again, all very good. Um, I mean, I think even the NIST directive, though, was watered down. Eventually, uh, didn't include all service providers, uh, governmental services like the cloud, um, and smaller businesses as well. So again, I think as, as we reflect, it may be that these sorts of other providers, uh, which are presumably also, gateways for attacks have to be included in any such directive if we're going to have a whole of Europe approach uh, in terms of uh, protection. Um, and also, I, I guess, looking beyond implementation of the NIST, which is ultimately going to be positive in terms of building capacity across member states, um, the culture of cybersecurity, I mean, one of the rationales was to create a culture, I guess, of uh, sharing incident reporting, uh, but also to develop a culture of, of cooperation. I think it remains to be seen whether this type of a governance approach will lead to uh, a, a trust-based, uh, sharing-based dialogue, okay? Um, but again, I think this is for the, a medium-term reflection, okay? But what will it lead to, even if it's implemented, uh, will it move in the right direction in terms of that sort of culture that we want to create across, uh, across Europe? Um, a third issue, um, again, another positive development that I saw in the revised strategy that w was this creation, and I think Jakob mentioned, of the, the competence centre. Um, and also around that, uh, a network um, that aims to pull work on cybersecurity from the national level. <coughs> I think in, in principle, that sort of a networked approach uh, is a very good idea. Uh, when we drill down into what these 
what this network will do and what this centre will do. I, I do wonder again whether there's a missed opportunity, and this may be because of, of the political aspect of this, of, of actually creating this within ENISA. That would we have not been better resourced uh, to create such a network uh, within uh, the, the ENISA framework, in a sense, that has experience of already doing this sort of task rather than doubling up? Um, I think there's going to be have, have to be some careful consideration as to how to re separate the responsibilities uh, of, of these agencies. But broader thinking on, you know, potentially in the future of how this this sort of institutional structure that's being created will be governed more broadly. So taking a step back, uh, uh, I guess, uh, on that. Because um, it also comes back to, to, I guess, you know, in terms of resource, the amounts that, that we're investing here. Um, there has to be new resource, whether that's uh, about the cybersecurity industry and market in Europe, uh, or whether that's about research, innovation, competence. Uh, and clearly, when we compare it to the US at 19 billion in 2017, you know, we compare, for instance, the, the public-private partnership with, with industry, uh, which is committed to 1.8 billion, you know, we're still quite far away, and you just quoted some figures as well uh, in terms of the amount. So that's going to be a challenge. I'm not saying it's, it can't be overcome. Uh, it's something uh, to, to think about. Um, and finally, I guess, and I'll, I'll finish on this because I don't, I don't want to uh, go, go further, but with, there's this issue of encryption, I guess. Um, and if you look at official statements and positions, the, the, there, are, there are several positions, I guess, within, within the EU uh, itself on this. Um, I mean, the position is that encryption is good if we, if we read the revised strategy, okay? Um, but uh, the practice is very, very different. Um, and if we're talking about creating trust uh, in a digital market, then that's going to become problematic. Uh, it is problematic already, I guess, in a sense. Um, so, you know, if we look at even just a simple issue of data retention, okay, from, from a European Court of Justice perspective, the European, uh, the, the, uh, the directive on retention uh, was annulled in 2014, but we've seen a continuation of the use of that in various legal guises in member states, okay? So if we're trying to build trust, um, we've seen fragmentation uh, along the lines of retention. And that's caused problems not just for trust, but also for law enforcement. Okay, so we're talking about creating a stronger and more resilient law enforcement um, ecosystem for dealing with cybercrime. These are issues and challenges that, that have still not been resolved, you know, alongside the tensions between perhaps global companies and various pieces of, of legislation uh, as well. So, as going back to the beginning, glass half full, glass half empty, <coughs> lots has been done. Lots has been proposed. I think, you know, the practice is, is going to prove, I think, critical. Um, and I'm going to leave it there, and I think we, there's lots to discuss anyway. There's lots of other points. Uh, not even talked about Facebook or any of what's been going on recently, but I think there's lots of other challenges as well. But I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all of the speakers for keeping to the time. And uh, I'll toss out one, uh, one question, I think, to get us going. And it, it really picks up on something that you tossed out, uh, George. 
Uh, as far as uh, certification, I'd be interested in following up a little more on, on what the views are around the table on, on how effective that is, how necessary it is. I know the fragmentation was an issue that showed up very prominently uh, in, the, uh, in, in some of the front text in the, uh, uh, in the regulation. Now, one example that really stood out for me was a claim that if a firm wanted to be providing, um, I think it was smart metering in the UK, France, and, and Germany, that they would expect to have to make investments in order to pass three distinct certification schemes. The, France was estimated to cost about 150K, uh, the UK about the same, and Germany about a million. So uh, in, in the previous panel, we had discussions about what's the impact on small businesses. I think even for a, for a not so small business, that's a substantial overhead. Um, is, is that, is that uh, pretty much key to the kinds of concerns that, uh, that drove the certification uh, thrust? And, uh, and is, that, is that right? Thank you very much for, for raising the issue of certification. Um, now, in terms of what has driven this initiative forward was that what we definitely see that there is a demand for certification. That's why we had emergence of national initiatives, uh, even though there is, there is definitely not very little still available. Indeed, so from that point of view, that was, that was one of the key reasons why we have come forward with this initiative. I think it's very useful when we speak about voluntary versus mandatory just to fully realize what mandatory means. I mean, mandatory basically certification means that you cannot place a product uh, on the market unless that product is certified. You know, that's basically what it means. So um, we felt that actually uh, making uh, such a decision for almost, I would say, infinitely broad scope of products and services that kind of come under the ICT product and services that may require different type of cyber security uh, features, I mean, would completely miss the purpose. I mean, now, this is, this is the, let's say, the, 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 my opening point. Secondly, the approach that we have taken absolutely does not exclude mandatory nature of specific use of cyber security products and services. So first of all, there is a clear reference to the future legislation that may actually require uh, <clears throat> mandatory certification and the link that we are making that if there is such a specific sector legislation, for example, requiring uh, like some type of medical devices to, to have mandatory certificates. So the link would be that if there is a scheme already established under the European framework, that scheme should be used to demonstrate uh, compliance. Secondly, de facto, I mean, what we are proposing uh, is basically a certain opportunity for the market and for the businesses. Already today, we have obviously a number of instances when certification is required, notably in the context of some types of some situations where public procurement is being applied, where, where national agencies uh, purchase ICT products which they want to, 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 to or specifically even cybersecurity products, and they want them to be certified. So, so this is going to be the case, and with the European uh, schemes in the future, what we are actually doing, we are definitely uh, uh, eventually lowering the cost for, for, the, for the providers because they would basically at some stage will not have to have a French and German and uh, another certificate, but they would be able to, to produce a, a European certificate. And that may also actually eventually 
lowers the cost of entry for small and medium-sized enterprises. So the picture is definitely mixed. It's not like black and white. I mean, our opening position is it's for the time being it's voluntary because at, because we are basically not setting up any specific scheme at that stage. Uh, so I think this this flexible arrangement would basically allow the use of certificates to be, frankly speaking, primarily driven by the market needs and by the needs of the users. Because again, there could be you know uh, even the same product that, depending on the risk environment, would basically necessitate a completely different type of you know response from from from, from the user. So I think, again, a bland sort of solution would simply not be fit for purpose from our perspective. Thank you. Thank you. And um, let's see, there was a special role for Anissa envisioned in the certification as well. Yes, uh, thank you, Chair. Just to, to uh, build on the, on the comments uh, made, made by Jakob. Um, Europe has a history in, 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 in this certification. It goes back to the initiatives uh, in, back in 1992, which uh, resulted in, in, in SOGUS uh, being created. And I think the lesson that we learn from that is that the certificates that have been produced in Europe have value both for Europeans and also uh, uh, for uh, Asia and, and countries well beyond Europe. It is seen as, a, as, a, as a, an element of trust and the, the history has been good there. So what has been proposed now is, is, a, is a flexible uh, network which uh, addresses what many speakers spoke about this morning, the, the difficulty of having a fragmented market where you needed a lawyers and regulatory sections for 27 countries to, to bring something to the European market. And what was proposed here in the, in the European context is, um, is, is going to meet, meet that requirement and, and should be of assistance to uh, industry both the big players and the small players. As regards the, pro the proposed role by ANISA, it's a facilitatory role. It's an, again, it's a coordination role. It's bringing the, the, the stakeholders together, identifying how the scheme uh, will, be, will be run. There will be a number of, of loops and checks uh, through, through the process before it gets through. So um, it's, a, it's a cooperation model to, to try and address a problem and create an opportunity for Europe in, in a global market. On that is a, is a mere doubling of, uh, of Anissa's budget enough to handle all the new responsibilities? I'll put you on the spot a bit, perhaps. Um, this happened to me um, last week at, at, at the council meeting as well. And like any good servant, civil servant, I'll give the same answer. Any civil servant would always look for more resources, um, but we have to leave, live in the real world and, and take what's an offer and work with it. Thank you. Nicely put. Well, uh, I'm happy to say that since the speakers were good about keeping to their time, we do have plenty of time for question and answer, and I'd like to hand off to the audience, to the floor. This is your panel. Early tea break. How can that be? Yes. Uh, generally, I'll ask people to introduce ourselves. I think everyone has already figured out who you are, Roland. Yes, thank you. Uh, I have a question. Uh, on, on, on to what extent the Commission is thinking about uh, extending their activity to the global level, because I believe that cybersecurity is an issue which cannot simply solved on a pure European level, 
but that we probably need some basic rules on the global level to tackle the most uh, critical problems we have. So a lot of attacks are coming from outside Europe, so probably we need some kind of cooperation at the global level, some basic global rules. Is there anything in the pipeline you're working at? Um, right, I mean, the, let's say the agenda is quite vast, so I don't work on those issues on a, let's say, daily basis, but what I can share is the following. I mean, first of all, we, <clears throat> it is certainly, uh, I mean, a global challenge, that's, that's why from the very beginning, uh, uh, if you even look at the first EU cybersecurity strategy, there was this approach that we have to address thoroughly, let's say, internal EU dimension, but equally, uh, the external dimension, that's why it was a joint communication of high representative for uh, for foreign policy and and for and, and of the European Commission. Um, and that basically is the, is the approach that, that, that kind of continues. Uh, EU is engaged in a number of, of bilateral dialogues of, uh, with, with, key, uh, with key countries. I would say they have a more sort of cyber political dimension. Uh, these are led by external action service as well as, let's say, more uh, technical market dimension where, where, DG, where the, part of the Department of the Commission that they represent uh, takes, uh, takes the lead. Uh, the issue of, uh, I think, global framework, of course, is a, is a very, very hot topic and it very much also uh, is part of a, of a, let's say, profound debate about the model of internet, you know, the, the question, uh, let's say, more of, a, let's say, the Europe and Western-supported multi-stakeholder model versus a more kind of government-centric or dominated model uh, pursued, for example, by uh, by China or Russia. And cybersecurity is, in a way, cannot be kind of isolated from this context, you know, because that basically leads to situations when cybersecurity is somehow differently understood or defined. Uh, that's why I think it is so difficult, actually, to, 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 to make for a sort of very kind of significant leap forward. I think the, what we definitely see is that we have different types of engagements and dialogues, but again, looking at this from a certain distance, you know, I, I must say, I do not necessarily expect like a, like a, as I said, major leap, leap forward very soon. Sorry that I was not a bit more concrete, but anyway, you know, I just have to also recognize the limit of my, of my competences. I don't follow up these issues on a very sort of daily basis. Well, if I could perhaps with a short yeah. follow-up, it seems to me there was a recent, uh, not so recent, uh, a very short communication about European response to coordinated attacks or to incidents that involve multiple member states, incidents that are beyond the capacity of a single member state to respond to, if, if, if memory... Uh, ah, right. Yeah. Could, could you perhaps yeah. speak a little to that? Yeah, yeah of course. Of course. Uh, I understand we speak about the recommendation of the Commission for so-called blueprint, the joint... Yeah, that, that is okay, okay, right. Uh, this is actually, I would say, something that is not linked so much to the to per se to external dimension. Of course, there is an external dimension possible, but they basically the thinking comes from the realization that we, uh, while we had over last years worked on different types of 
crisis response mechanism at EU level in view of the fast-changing cybersecurity landscape, the diversity of, let's say, cybersecurity actors, we lacked basically a clarity on how, how, in a way, the cyber component of a possible future crisis should be tackled. So as part of cyber um, security package of last year, the Commission came up with a recommendation on, on how basically to coordinate action in case of large-scale attack. This was not just like a recommendation coming from the Commission, but that was basically based uh, on, on the consultations with member states and with different types of mechanism. Now what we are, uh, so I anyway recommend basically this to, 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 to have a look at this document. Um, uh, it is basically centered around the issues of, of, uh, of situational awareness in case of crisis, uh, basically how to make sure that basically decision makers have a right information at hand. Uh, also the possibility of coordination of a response and finally public communication. So these are basically three, three, three areas of, of what, is, what has been discussed. What we see and what is very positive is there is a, definitely an interest from member states and from, from the council to, to follow up on that. And again, we expect some further, let's say, steps by, 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 by the current presidency. So at the end of the day, there would be basically, a, as I said, more clarity on how, how these different actors would work together. ENISA, Europol, EC3, uh, the council ma crisis, manage uh, crisis management mechanism, what would be the input of those different, uh, of those different actors. And then, indeed, there is a link with an external dimension where basically this type of a crisis comes, is basically um, uh, or inspired or, or orchestrated by, 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 a, by an actor coming from outside of the Union. Yes, indeed, then, then it complements basically what EU can, can do in those, in those matters. And we also have a so-called so diplomatic toolbox also which reflects also a growing awareness and, and understanding among member states on the need to agree on what kind of type of tools, including diplomatic tools, EU could use in, in, in such situations. Uh, thank you, Chair. Just to, to, to add uh, and, and make three points. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the whole concept of legal extraterritorial effect is becoming more common uh, across um, various jurisdictions. In the European context, we see that in the GDPR reaching outside Europe. And then I, I recall in the last few days, um, the eCloud Act has been introduced by the, the US, uh, again, to have, uh, have a similar effect to, to address some of the uh, challenges of accessing evidence. Uh, second point is, I mentioned we do exercises. We have done exercises with third countries as well and participated uh, with uh, third countries organizing exercises to, to learn from, from our experiences. So that has helped to build up relationships between key actors who would participate in the event of uh, an incident um, that would have, uh, where there would be at least an established trust in place uh, to facilitate information. So the, the whole role of coordination and, and outreach is, is, is one of the, uh, the key issues. And then the structure that's underpinning that is, is the blueprint, which was just described at, at the coordination at, at the various different levels to make it uh, as effective as possible. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. And while we're on the international dimension, then I'd like to give um, Mark uh, Smith a chance to speak. Uh, Microsoft is a global corporation, and, and the initiatives that you, I'm especially thinking of the, uh, the forensic cooperation 
that you proposed as part of the uh, Digital Geneva Convention, this idea that identifying what the source was for an attack and that there should be international cooperation on that seems to me to be directly relevant to this. Thanks. Uh, so uh, I did mention in my original opening remarks that Microsoft uh, makes a large financial investment uh, in order to defend our systems and services, and we have over 3,000 security engineers to defend our systems and services. But it goes beyond just the figures of the resources and the um, quantity of uh, staff available. Um, it's also uh, how they're structured and how they cooperate um, externally. Um, we have an organisation um, inside Microsoft, a threat intelligence centre, and we participate in information sharing and analysis centres in different sectors uh, around uh, the world as well. So um, we play an important role in cooperation um, with partners and also customers in order to help them based on the information and the threat intelligence that we have to protect and defend themselves. And this information is based on uh, our systems and services operating worldwide um, and the networks and the uh, data points that we have access to. And when the uh, information comes in um, as a feed, um, it can be provided to customers um, or partners um, in a uh, cooperative way um, and a controlled way. It's not just freely available um, and readily uh, accessible. Uh, because it's um, quite useful. One good example for it um, is helping EU institutions to defend themselves because the um, Cyber Emergency Response Team for the EU institution, CERT-EU, uh, participate in um, threat intelligence sharing where we provide them with information. Um, it's a one-way feed um, which they make use of. It's not that we have access to their systems and we read them. It's we um, intentionally um, provide them with uh, transparent information about what we know about various different types of threats and behaviours. So that's one example of what we are doing in order to um, help um, international cooperation going global based on our own um, uh, resources and uh, organisation uh, uh, organizational setup and commitment to transparency and information security. Um, one of the other things that is uh, what you've just alluded to um, is something that we refer to as an attribution council. So I did say that Microsoft uh, is a, a, an enterprise organisation. It's not there to create new international treaties. Uh, and therefore, the name of a digital Geneva Convention is often taken at face value and people think we're proposing new international treaties. That's not the case. It's just the name of a programme uh, with three different pillars in it. One I've already mentioned is a tech accord. The other one um, is uh, an attribution council. Again, not an organisation that should be left to private sector to uh, be able to do it by itself. Uh, and therefore not necessarily something that should be done by an individual country or, or member state. Um, it's a collaborative, the, the concept is a collaborative effort where the information about threats and about, uh, identifiable behaviours of cyber attack can be used and uh, co uh, combined together in order to provide evidence whereby a council could collectively come to a decision to attribute the origin and source of a cyber attack. Um, that's one of the um, aims of Microsoft to try and help at a global level um, better resilience in cybersecurity through attribution mechanisms. Thanks. Is, um, 
is that something that should be set up with uh, less than universal uh, kind of participation? In other words, you could, the, the, the critical mass of countries come together, not everybody? Uh, we, I'm, I'm thinking, by the way, also of Mr. Borotinsky's comment that some countries have a different view of cybersecurity than we tend to in Europe. It's definitely correct. So the previous um, attempts at trying to do something around this, uh, because it's closely linked to the other pillar of the Digital Geneva Convention, the idea of binding uh, government agreement um, uh, of what is acceptable behaviour by a nation-state in cyberspace. Um, and un unfortunately, everybody has different definitions of cyber warfare and um, what constitutes a cyber attack or, or conflict in cyberspace. Um, I, it's complicated. I won't go into it in too much detail. But what I will say is there was a lot of work done by the UN group of governmental experts uh, last year, and they were unable to reach agreement globally, um, even though there were quite a lot of countries aligned to the United States um, and similar countries' approaches. Um, for defining um, cyber warfare and conflict in cyberspace. But there was a, a dissent um, uh, among particularly Russia and Cuba defining uh, conflict in cyberspace should include information warfare and national um, uh, nation-state-supported uh, propaganda programs. Uh, and therefore, uh, at that stage, an agreement was n unable to be reached but you can see that there was necessarily a critical mass. But it needs, uh, from our perspective, it certainly needs to be a uh, combined uh, unanimous approach. Uh, otherwise, it'll just, we've already mentioned the fragmentation word, and that needs to be avoided as much as possible. Thank you. Well, now we have lots of questions. I counted one, two, three, four. So uh, first, Antonio from Banco Santander. Yes. made by Professor Cristo uh, regarding the need to, to improve digital skills uh, in Europe. Um, I know, I know uh, that is, that is the, 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 you know, the hook to my question and to my comment to the Commission. Um, I know that the Commission doesn't have um, attributes to force any educational uh, program in member states. I'm going to wait for uh, Mr. Boraski to, he to hear my, quest my comment. Okay, I know, that, that I know that the Commission doesn't have the capacity to impose any uh, educational program uh, in member states, but in this uh, important uh, role of um, uh, benchmarking, information sharing, and so on and so forth, uh, I would like to pinpoint to the case of uh, a small country, not a European country, which is uh, Chile. Chile is uh, basically revamping and reanalyzing all the curricula of all the international, all, all of the un, um, university studies to include the need to, 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 to become uh, um, experts in digitalization, coding, and so on and so forth. Under the motto that coding is the new English. You need to be able to code as well as you need to be able to speak English. So these sort of things that, in my view, reflects the, the, the um, um, you know, the, the how advanced can a, 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 an educational system become, it is something that perhaps in Europe we should, we should be uh, trying to, to, to copy and to learn. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Kurt Geiser from Backbone Consulting. Yeah. 
from Backbone Consulting in Germany, a question for Mr. Boratiski. You mentioned possible attacks from outside, and in this context you mentioned Mrs. Mogherini. Is it true that there is a task force in building up in the external action service, and is there also cooperation with NATO? Bodo Richard, European Federation of Accounts and Audits for SMEs. Mr. Ryan, you mentioned some good examples of SMEs for cybersecurity. Last year, we heard at our IT conference uh, from a representative from ENISA that there is still a lack of evidence and there was still lack of support from SMEs for cybersecurity. Could you give us some examples where there has been progress and maybe where there's still and um, information or activities are missing? Good afternoon, my name is Alexandra Major, I'm on Central Bank of Austria. Um, you mentioned um, the issue of certification, which surely is an important issue. Um, I just, I'm just wondering, um, um, how to to tackle that in in practical terms, like uh, because obviously certification is always lagging a bit behind, and how to bridge this gap between um, kind of regulating something or certifying something, and then with the uh, with the pace and the, um, the of the innovation, basically. Thank you. With that, I think we'll move to the answers to the four questions. First, Mr. Borotinsky, since he has to leave. I'm really apologies for, for that, that I will not say in the end. So first, the question concerning skills. Um, so first of all, of course, as you understand, uh, Commission's powers in that respect are, are limited uh, in the area of education. I mean, nevertheless, this is being recognized as a very important uh, area where actually cooperation indeed between member states should be encouraged. That's why the issue of skills have been very much addressed in, in the joint communication. It is a, a topic on which uh, the Commissioner Maria Gabriel actually is, is really dedicating a lot of her attention. Of course, not just in the context of cybersecurity, but more broadly, digital skills. Now, specifically on cybersecurity, within the tasks of this future competence center, uh, that has been described and on which we are working now and there should be a proposal coming up soon. Indeed, we see the specific role of the center in aligning curricula and basically driving this kind of the, the direction whereby we could have a, a more um, aligned approach um, in Europe. I would say especially as relates to this more high-end uh, skills, uh, uh, cybersecurity. Uh, on the issue of um, uh, foreign uh, external dimension, obviously External Action Service has for many years a team of people dedicated to cybersecurity. We have been working together back already on the first cybersecurity strategy. Uh, so there is definitely this kind of policy <clears throat> uh, policy coordination in, the, in that respect. With NATO, this has actually uh, received an important push with the Warsaw Declaration of 2016. Uh, cybersecurity was recognized as one of the important areas of EU-NATO cooperation. Uh, one practical example is, 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 is so-called parallel exercise between EU and NATO on actually hybrid issues, but, but then, of course, cyber is playing uh, an important uh, component. And finally, on certification, 
Um, I think you're absolutely right. This is really, really very, very challenging. I mean, what the, what we propose is not going to to bring the results immediately. So, um, but what we are actually, uh, the, because as I have said, now we are just basically discussing the governance framework. But what is already happening now is the discussion uh, in which basically NISA is also playing an important role with with, with the stakeholders or what are basically the priority areas of certification, what could be the first schemes, and again, one of obviously a good uh, candidate is an existing intergovernmental scheme such as SOGIS to, be, uh, to, to become actually a European scheme under the framework. Uh, that actually would have some relevance even to the sector that you represent, because obviously the, you have uh, products certified under SOGIS, which, which are relevant for, 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 for the financial uh, sector. Uh, but as I, I also see it as a sort of a parallel process with the regulation, with the sector regulation. We basically see how cybersecurity is being mainstreamed, like the payment services, the new payment services directive is including specific provision on cybersecurity. One of the ways to actually um, uh, to, to implement risk management or s obligations or, or obligation under NIS directive to, to, to put in place appropriate security measures would be actually to use certify, I'm saying one of such possibilities, not like again a silver bullet, but one of the possibilities would be indeed use of cer certified cybersecurity product and, 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 and services. So we would see this kind of, you know, like an interplay and in virtuous uh, cycle where, where basically regulatory um, progress can actually be reinforcing demands for certification and, and the, at the same time you know the, 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 the basically the, the increased uh, opportunities uh, coming from the regulation would also be beneficial for the for the industry offering this uh, this product and, but ultimately of course would benefit the, the, the resilience and the, and the increased level of cybersecurity in the internal market. Thank you. Very much for that, and uh, thank you very much for your participation on the panel. I, I know you'll have to leave in a second. Let's see. We'll uh, we'll hand off uh, at least one of the questions. I think was straight to you. So why don't we let you ne speak next? Okay. In relation to the question uh, on SMEs and SME participation, uh, Anisa organizes annually and has for the last. This is the sixth year. Uh, an industry event focused on SMEs and in fact the, the 2018 event is scheduled to take place tomorrow here in Brussels and what that has allowed us is for, for European SME community to come together and not alone um, to meet people to, to see the latest challenges and the latest opportunities uh, in the areas of cyber security but to extend beyond the technical aspect and look at uh, funding opportunities um, to, to raise finance, um, access to uh, the, the knowledge associated with the research and development uh, calls put out by the Commission, um, advice on procurement issues that would help SMEs to participate more. So uh, this year, uh, tomorrow, uh, in, in light of the proposal put forward by the Commission on certification. There's going to be quite a bit of focus on certification. Um, I have a figure buried here somewhere in my paper of, of an enormous amount of money that is, going, is expected to be spent on certification of products and services uh, in, in the next few years on, on a global basis. 
and uh, we believe SMEs are ideally placed to get into this space and, and organically grow um, to, to meet the, the, the new needs that are emerging uh, from the, the legislation that is being put forward. So uh, we, we recognise that we're working closely with them. Uh, our comments derive from our experiences and, and feedback from the community. Um, I suggest, if, if you're not familiar with the meeting tomorrow, um, that we can, we can get you there. And um, it's, 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 it's really focusing on cyber security and, and an, as, a, as an SME opportunity. Thank you. Good. And uh, Mark, did you have any responses to the questions? They weren't specifically pointed at you. Uh, no, but uh, on the point about uh, certification and how to do things quickly, you're qu quite correct. Uh, one of the main problems um, for certification is what do you certify against? Um, and from the perspective of trying to make this actually useful, um, it needs to be based on international, globally recognised standards. They yeah. take a long time to develop. So one of the really good things about the proposal is it's a certification framework, yeah. and it's not designed to replace or remove or um, uh, get rid of uh, existing mechanisms, um, organisations, procedural processes to produce new certificates. Um, it, 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 with the existing um, uh, framework, uh, existing uh, tools that are already in place, the, the aim of the framework is to make sure it's one, one at the EU level, uh, one certificate in one member state uh, is recognised uh, across in another. Um, how that's going to work in practice is another matter, but it does mean that, uh, in effect, uh, where um, SOGIS, good example, um, is only applicable in 14 member states, it will mean that it'll next, uh, without any effort, be recognised across the entire of the Union. So that's the advantage to an immediate impact. Um, it'll take a while for that to kick in. Okay, and George, over to you for the last word. Oh, dear. All right, okay. <laughs> uh, a word, then. I'm not sure it can be the last word. I, I mean, I, I just, just on, I was just going to comment on the... Uh, the institutional capabilities of the EU. I mean, the European External Action Service uh, takes the lead on a lot of the external. We were asked about the sort of global external initiatives, but you know, at the last count, I thought there was four people in the unit, right? I think there might be five now. So, from the perspective of trying to negotiate dialogues, uh, there's strategic bilateral cybersecurity dialogues, and then all the global platforms that they participate in. I think there's also a, very much a resource issue uh, within the EAS in terms of how much can actually be undertaken and promised uh, in terms of the perspective of concrete action. I've done a little bit of work on the sort of Jap Jap Japan EU and China EU. Uh, cybersecurity dialogue, uh, and there are various structural as well as cultural problems uh, and problems of ideas of how the internet should work uh, in those. Uh, the, the Geneva Convention is a fascinating idea, um, and the Tech Accord, I mean, I can have a chat with Mark about that in, in private, I think. Uh, but I think what, what we're seeing here is that, that to make progress, we're going to need both governments and larger uh, tech firms to take the lead uh, on this. And even then, we have to be prepared for a differentiated, uh, I think, uh, agreement, even though the ideal would be for everybody to go, yes, excellent, we all agree. I don't think that's going to be the, the case. Um, and we have to figure out how everybody can fit in, but with differentiated, the differentiated interests and visions that they have. Anyway, that's me done.
If no one has remarks, other remarks that need to be made, then this is a good time to hand off to the next panel, and we are almost back on schedule. So, thanks to the speakers. Okay, uh, could the, uh, uh, could the uh, crew please uh, switch the nameplates? Thank you. It'll be a little rush, rush change now, but there's no break plan before the next session. Okay, so I suggest that we uh, we start the, uh, the 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 session. Uh, it's been quite a, quite a full day, lots of interesting uh, discussions, and uh, I think we are going to have a, a very nice discussion in this uh, in this panel uh, as well. Now it seems to me that the uh, the team. Uh, of uh, this panel is going to be disruption, disruptive technology. Uh, I hope also we can have disruptive ideas, um, but I think that is really what, uh, what uh, we are meant to, uh, to discuss. Uh, what is the uh, impact of this disruptive technology? Um, lots of nice things, lots of worrisome uh, elements. And uh, what does it mean in, you know, in, uh, in economic terms? What does it mean for incumbent firms uh, versus newcomers? You know, is that the way for newcomers to enter or it's the other way around? Uh, are there already some incumbents who have uh, entrenched uh, positions here? Uh, what does it mean uh, for entrepreneurs versus labor? Or how is labor evolving in this, uh, in this new economy, right? Uh, what kind of also of, of labor, what does it mean for different kinds of labor? Uh, skilled uh, versus unskilled? Is it the end of uh, unskilled 
uh, workers? Uh, is it a winner-take-all uh, economy? All of those kind of disruption. So uh, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll hear a lot of uh, views uh, on this. We are going to start, uh, we'll do it in this uh, alphabetical uh, order. So we start with Lee uh, Junius from uh, Google uh, to tell us what is you know, your, your analysis uh, of the situation. And then uh, we'll follow with, uh, with Oliver, with Renilde, and then with, uh, with Andrew. Okay, Lee, uh, you're, the, uh, you're the first. Alphabetical order, absolutely. Okay. Ten minutes for each of you. Okay. Thank you, André, and uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I was preparing my speech over the weekend in the sun, and I, uh, I, was, I was reading a book. <laughs> and I was reading a book where I found a lot of wisdom, and one of the phrases that I found was, you cannot step in the same river twice. And it made me think about, you know, what does this mean? And of course, you know, I didn't invent uh, this, this, this inspiring sentence. It comes from a Greek philosopher, 500 uh, years BC, and his name was Heraclitus. Everybody knows, I think, a bit this is the idea behind. So the idea is that, of course, the river is changing nonstop, and the person, uh, him or herself is also changing. So today we're talking about, about change, and, and he was using that quote to, to talk about change at that time. And today I think we see technology as very much driving uh, and being part of, of such change. Now the, the question is, and it would be interesting to see here in the audience, how you see this digital uh, change. Do you see it as a a natural evolution, or do you do you see it as an unprecedented change? So, if you see it as an unprecedented change, maybe you can raise your hand just to get a feel of the of the thinking in the group. Okay, some very clear opinions here. So, I think that's that's good for the discussion later on. So. Representing Google, we believe you know, that technology um, is offering us a, a lot of opportunities and, and, and benefits for the society at all. And that means that over the 18 years that um, the company has, has existed, we had to embrace non-stop change and we had to adapt. And uh, you may have heard that our CEO, Sundar Pichal, is, is, was speaking about our company as an AI first Company and at, at the time there were only a few uh, machine learning experts or AI experts, and then we realized that of course everybody in the in in the company needed to be uh, an an AI expert or have some level of expertise, and I think everybody in the room should have some some machine learning or uh, AI expertise. And if I can invite you after this panel to follow the very simple three-minute machine learning crash course. If you Google it, you will find it immediately. You know, it tells you, it tells you a bit what this AI uh, concept is, or machine learning concept is about. 
So we think that the opportunity is there, that the potential is there, and we're very happy to also see here in Europe, being Belgian, being part of Europe, um, that Europe is also embracing the potential of artificial uh, intelligence. And we see that Europe is hosting one of the most innovative uh, uh, companies in robotics, in automation, but also in, in AI. And we see a lot of, of bigger players, but we also see a lot of smaller niche players where Europe really is, is, is leading. And I was reading uh, a report uh, from DigiConnect uh, where they mentioned a very interesting uh, number that um, in Europe, uh, European AI startups have uh, raised 3.6 billion in 2017. That is three times more than in 2016. Um, so Europe is, is gearing up for, for change and is embracing uh, this, this change and is also embracing artificial intelligence to address, for instance, very important societal challenges like uh, medical research or uh, environmental uh, challenges, but also is embracing, I think, AI uh, as an opportunity, an economical opportunity uh, for the future. AI will for sure drive growth and, and, and productivity by making you know, uh, work more uh, effect, uh, efficient and effective. But technology can also address uh, areas of unemployment uh, by making sure that uh, technology is assisting upskilling uh, and matching people to the right uh, job opportunities. And here I would invite you uh, to read a very interesting study from uh, the company Cognizant. I, I think I'm not you know, um, pronouncing it very well, but it's about the 20, uh, 21 jobs of the future. We're always saying we don't know what's going to happen in the future and what type of jobs will be out there. I invite you to have a look at this study. You find these 21 different jobs <coughs> with very intriguing titles like uh, an AI business developer, or uh, a virtual store Sherpa, or a data uh, detective. So, um, but what is most striking, if you open this study, there is a post-it. And the post-it says, humans need it. And I think you know, it's about this human factor that is really, really important to recognize today uh, in, in the debate. We should, uh, shouldn't underestimate the importance in an AI-driven uh, world of, of um, creativity, interpersonal skills, problem solving. Um, I want to stress that it's not just always about coding. Coding is important, but there are lots of other skills that will be very important uh, going forward in the digital economy. And one of them is, for instance, IT support. We know that there will be a 10% increase for the demand of IT support, but we don't have you know, all the people available at the moment. So two last points you know, to, uh, to make sure I stick to my 10 minutes. What is needed then? Well, very obviously, it was mentioned in, in the previous uh, panel, we need to rethink training. In the past, it was very clear, you know, people uh, learned the job with the skills needed, and it was enough for the whole lifetime. But that's no longer uh, the, the case. And um, 
I'm going here to borrow a, a term that I heard from uh, Oliver's colleague from uh, uh, uni. And he was speaking about uh, the world of work being um, hyperfluid, and I, I fully agree with that. We need to make sure that we have continuous education available for uh, everyone. And our CEO was speaking in, in, in that context about constant, lightweight, and ubiquitous forms of education. And I also that there's some excellent work from the OECD done in this field, so it's good that we're looking at it as well from an international perspective. My last uh, remark will be on one element that I find uh, super relevant and very important as well in this discussion. And like any technology, AI, there is no, nothing pre predestined about uh, the impact of AI. So I talked about the opportunities, but of course there are many uh, challenges and risks also uh, linked with the use of this technology. And we should make sure that this technology can be used for everyone, so uh, the idea is that the, the digital economy should empower uh, everybody and not exclude uh, or alienate uh, future workers. So I think today is a time for a very timely discussion around those aspects and I'm looking forward uh, to the further debate. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Lee. I think uh, you did a very, very nice, uh, very nice job. Uh, I think uh, from what I, uh, I took, uh, yes, uh, it is uh, it's a disruptive uh, technology. Uh, obviously, it's, it's not an evolution, it's a, it's a revolution. Re um, and I think it was interesting how you, you, you put the emphasis on, uh, on uh, AI and uh, machine, uh, machine learning. You know, what, I mean, what is really uh, the, uh, the, 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 the challenge here? And what is the, what is the nature of the disruption? And uh, I thought also, and very nice link to, to the next speaker, uh, the emphasis that you put on the, uh, on the training and retraining lifelong, uh, lifelong uh, learning, and which is obviously associated to the fact that although it's a disruptive, it's... It's disruptive not once, right? It's going to continue. And uh, that means that obviously, uh, although there are lots of opportunities, uh, for those opportunities to really be opportunities rather than be what one calls challenges mm -hmm. or fears, uh, one needs to be equipped. Uh, and our societies and uh, people need to be uh, equipped for that. So I think that's a perfect... Um, way to, to move to the next uh, speaker, uh, Olivier uh, Röting, uh, the, uh, the regional uh, secretary of UNI uh, for, for Europe, uh, representing uh, services uh, workers, right? So you are uh, representing different uh, labor unions not a labor union, right? You're a grouping of labor unions, but essentially in the services uh, sectors throughout the world, but you are uh, representing the, uh, the European uh, unions. So looking forward to, to hear your viewpoint on this. Thank you, Andre. And Uni Europa is a European services workers union, and so we organize and cover uh, the services which are not public services in the more narrower sense of public administration, etc. Um, I want to pick up on two things what uh, Lee and Andre has already said. Uh, um, there was one thing 
what does it mean for workers? And I think it's not actually the end of low-skilled workers. Uh, if we want to go into it, it's probably in the first place the end of mid-skilled and mid-paid services workers as we know them over the last 100 years. I think that will be one of the key challenges. The second uh, challenge, and there Lee was also refer referring to it, we have a revolution there. The problem of this revolution nowadays, when we look at it uh, to previous ones, is actually it most likely will be a permanent one. We are not stopping, but we are going on. What I want to do in the first part, I mean, looking at four of the elements which I think are really uh, disrupted. And that's not so much about a question of technology, but really of, uh, of the systems and of the structure in our society, both respective to the economic system, to the regulatory system, and also labor markets. And these are the importance of the services sectors, rapid change, second, globalization, and fourth, the character of employment as it is. So we have shortened, and just with three terms, a challenge in terms of character, time, and space. There we really see uh, big changes. So first, when I come to services, 70% um, of workers are in the services sectors. And as I said already, uh, there will be a big part of impact on the mid-skilled and mid-paid jobs. Um, I remember talking to uh, someone from the insurance sector, and they basically said, well, in our company, in five years' time, and that is already two years back, uh, we only need uh, about 20% of the staff. Or we hear in Germany from some of the banks that there's a reduction of over 50% foreseen. So where are those jobs going? And I'm still from a generation. You didn't go to university in Germany first. You first went to your bank and had an apprenticeship there, and then you had a job for life, and then you could with the money of the bank, uh, go further and go to university and you had a clear career. That's, that's gone and for my grandmother, uh, for my mother after the Second World War was, she should become a tailor and you have a safe job ever because tailors are always needed. Those assumptions are not really uh, that good anymore. So there is a problem. What do we do with the mid-skilled jobs? And let's be quite clear. This is a middle class which is a backbone of our society, certainly in Europe. And they are challenged, and their challenge is actually reflected in the political system when you look at voters. They are afraid. And being German, you really are somewhat reminded of the times uh, of the 1920s and 1930s and the insecurity. So that is one of the challenges. The second one is rapid change, and that is this permanent revolution. I heard um, from someone from an IT company who said, basically, we changed our long-term planning from five years to three years. Or another one from a bank uh, CEO who said, well, you have to imagine that the technical change we are facing in the next five years is the same as in the last 20 years. But he meant this dynamic. That means basically every five years are the last 20 years. So you ex have actually a situation which reminds me of the story of the um, invention of the chess game. Some people might have heard it. The inventor was uh, asked by the king, what do you want? And the inventor was a bit annoyed and said, well, you put a rice corn on the first one, double it on the second, and so on. And the uh, emperor was laughing until he had calculated that it was totally impossible to give it. And so the question is, are we getting in a situation where there is just overload by the speed of change? And what do we do about this? And that is a very simple example. If uh, the time period is about three, five years, how do you want to plan your future as a company, as a country? Or as a person, just imagine you decide, in three, five years, my skills are outdated, and I go forth for this new skill set. But in five years, it might be a totally different skill set. 
and how frustrated are you and how much resources as an individual but also as a society have you wasted? So what do we do about it? The third issue is um, globalization. How do we deal with a situation where actually the regulatory systems, the societal systems, which are still national in nature, don't really have full grip on it? One example is when you go to the big multinational companies, uh, you can't really say that their uh, top management comes from one country or is really in alliance with any particular company. They are made up with a combination of interests. You have the situation of a global value chain. You have global sourcing. It's not one country which actually provides all the sources that the company needs. And then one point is, and I think that again is a problem for <coughs> the middle section of the labor market, is why should we as a company, if we don't know what is happening tomorrow, actually invest in core competences ourselves, rather hope that somebody does invest it, and then we just grab it. It's a bit, uh, in a sense, what the pharma pharmaceutical industry does already today, rather than uh, doing all the invention themselves, they go around and uh, buy the most uh, uh, promising products and then develop them further. I exaggerate a bit, but I mean, that is one of the examples. And the fourth is really the, the character of the labor market. <coughs> we all still, most people still think in the context of there's some kind of standard employment contract. That you basically start a job and then you have at least a certain career path in it and can get another job and so on, and this is ending. <coughs> we have more and more self-employed, we have freelancers, we have platform workers. And all this boils down to the fact that um, the value chain, the work is ever more fine-sliced, so that you end up in small little tasks <coughs> Sorry, I have a bit of a cold. And when you have these small tasks, I mean, then in the worst case, you use a platform in Google or whatever else, and then you basically, every second or so, you get a new little uh, job. You can auction your work um, on it, and if you win, you have a job, but you don't have really a predictable future. <coughs> and this is actually not something new. It is just something which hasn't really happened for the last 100 years. When we look back uh, in the previous years, in the Middle Ages, it was task work in the services sector. You were just engaged for a certain job, rather for something uh, more complicated. So one of the problems is we won't have a job for life anymore. But what I think is still in our interest, to have a job, to have an employment for life. So how can we structure it? I think that is one of the key questions. And we have examples like this, for instance, in the media and, uh, and entertainment in the arts. In many countries, there is a system where as freelancers, you have basically an employment relationship over the years without having an employer. So one question for us is, what do we actually want for the future? And one example there is, uh, do we want or we don't want? Work-life balance is one of the words we want, and how do we want to shape it? For me, one of the questions is, yes, as a trade unionist, I'm very much in favor, but I'm also very much in favor of having a Sunday free and even the weekend free. Going back 50 years, I mean, I remember the trade unions in Germany going out and says, on the weekend, father is ours. And I think giving up on this is a question, do we need this because of flexibility? So what we want to do is really shape digitalization in a way that it serves us. Digitalization and all the destruction should actually help the workers, the workers, the citizens, to do a better job, a job empower them rather than saying, 
workers have to adapt. I mean, there is a bit of the, of the saying in old Latin, slaves were also called um, talking tools. So do we as human beings now become talking tools, or do we actually want to be uh, working citizens? Let me just um, conclude with um, two thoughts. First of all, I think uh, we should empower ourselves. And I think they're the social partners, employers, and trade unions play a key role. They're the closest to the workplace. When you look especially at skills, and you have rapid development of skills, and they are best placed to identify what is needed and how we can keep with it. So saying they are best uh, placed when they're close to the workplace is a first thought. The second thought is, if you do this, then you very quickly have big players who get better and better, and all the rest get weaker. So I think a sectoral approach is best, where actually there's solidarity by, among an industry, a sector, so that people actually help each other and bring skills forward. Small and medium-sized enterprises, for instance, will have difficulties actually to keep up all the, all the time, or it's basically the survival of the fittest, you're lucky or you're not, and depending on this, you can continue, and I think there is a task for society to um, move forward. In that sense, one last point. Um, Shall we support startups? And how can we support startups? And um, my point is, why should the focus be on startups? I think the focus should be making especially small and medium-sized uh, companies ready, which exist already for a while, to be acting like startups. So how can we empower those companies rather than having this uh, Schumpeter things? Okay, if you can't deliver, you go and we find somebody else. I think our society is really about working together and make basically change, even in this rapidity, as structured and systematic as possible so that everybody can follow. Thank you. Thank you. I'm uh, very tempted, and not only tempted, I will do it, <coughs> to, ask you, uh, to ask you the following question. No, I, I think you, you, you started uh, with the, uh, the remark, not the assumption, the remark that comes out of uh, many, many uh, studies, this hollowing up of the center, the middle, uh, the mid-skill, the mid right? So uh, we are uh, in a situation where indeed we see the growth of job, there is growth of job on the low skill and on the high skill, and it's the middle uh, which, is, uh, which is having difficulty, and then you, you went into the middle class and you know the whole change, right? And yes, indeed, and we you know the anger of the middle class and you know, all of the, 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 the populism and all of those things. Okay, no. The, the, the question that I'm curious, from the viewpoint of labor unions, uh, in, the, uh, in the past, uh, let's say the powerful labor unions, they were not certainly in the services or in the private uh, services. They were either in the industrial sector, in Germany, the metal workers, right? The famous metal workers uh, union, or in the public services, then in the private services. So my question to you is, uh, what do you see the role uh, of the uh, services, private uh, sector uh, services labor union uh, today in the future? Uh, given that, uh, I mean, workers typically in the, uh, in the services sector are less organized uh, for a variety of reasons, right, than in the old industrial 
plants or in the mines, right? There you have workers, usually male workers, and this was the sort of middle class. This model, this model of the labor union is obviously changed a great deal because the nature of work, uh, as, as you indicated, the kind of labor contract, all of this has evolved uh, a lot. Um, so what, what is, uh, I mean, not in a long, uh, you know, in, in a long presentation, but what is in your and your colleagues' view, you know, what is the role uh, of the labor union <coughs> in those sectors in shaping the kind of social dialogue? Is there still room for that? Uh, is that social dialogue becoming very, very difficult? Uh, how, do you, how do you see that? How, can you help this process uh, ensuring that, you know, what you talked, which I thought was very interesting, you know, uh, employment for life rather than job for life, right? I mean, all of this and the nature of work and all of those, what, what is the role of the labor union in this disruptive situation? Um, a short, uh, short answer. Yeah, I know. Uh, in your analysis, uh, my answer would be yes and no. I mean, you're right in so far in the services sector, especially classical in Germany, also services unions were uh, weaker. One of the reasons is, uh, of course, if you have a factory with 5,000 employers, it's different if you have supermarkets with two employers to organize. There is a challenge in this. On the other hand, you take the example of media entertainment. Their trade unions always have been uh, very strong, and they are even less organized than is in the supermarket. So it's just a question of how you look at it. And the same is true, <coughs> for example, bank unions in other parts of the world, or in southern uh, Europe, were always very strongly organized, whereas in Germany they are very weakly organized. So there is no clear picture. But I think we have, as a method, when we look uh, back at the traditions and the experience of trade unions, we have all the tools. We just basically have not to reinvent them. We just have to apply the experience we have made over the last 150 years to this new uh, way of the world of work. So I'm very uh, positive on this, that this is happening. I see some good examples in Romania, for instance, where in the commerce, uh, the IT sector, as well as in the finance sector, we are coming back to sector collective bargaining, which nobody would have believed only three years ago. Uh, more difficult is when you have entrenched strong unions, because then you not only have to create something new, but you also basically have to somehow push aside the ways you have done things for successfully for many, many decades. Thank you very much. So we move now to uh, <coughs> a broader analysis, uh, economic analysis. Uh, Renil de Vogeler, who is a senior fellow here uh, at Bruegel, a professor at uh, the University of Leuven, uh, has done a lot of work on uh, technology, uh, innovation, uh, industrial, uh, industrial economics. And uh, she has really lots of knowledge on those things. So what is your uh, uh, analysis of the nature of this disruption? Yep. Thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity. So indeed, I would like to focus on, on um, the innovation part and productivity growth from digital. Uh, in the end, so looking at which companies will actually be creating the sustainable jobs uh, in, in, in the future. 
Um, and, and there, the evidence that we've looked at, and, and we just came out a couple to last week with a policy contribution on this, um, is that on average, Europe is, is not doing so well in terms of its eco-innovation system. And that's basically because it has a problem of dealing with creative destruction. Its, it's uh, innovation system is much more about incumbents with incremental uh, improvements. And it's much more difficult to deal with uh, young, destructive uh, innovators and creative destruction. If you look at the digital sector itself, and then particularly in the areas where most of the growth is and where most of the value capture is, and that's particularly in the services, software, and, and network providers, EU firms are no longer at the innovation frontier. Uh, the, the typical EU ICT incumbents used to be in hardware, equipment, telecom, um, and they have actually been creatively distracted by new challenges from these software and network, uh, which are mostly in the US and, and also recently in, in China. It's not to say that the EU didn't have any so any startups uh, in this area, particularly in software, but most of these startups actually failed to scale up uh, independently and to become world leaders, and were usually taken over uh, by the other uh, players. So the big question is why didn't we didn't we manage to, to pass that creative destruction uh, phase here? And I think definitely the digital single market and the lack of it is a very important reason as why we were missing these incentives to go for the more uh, creative, destructive type of investments. But it's broader than that. It's also lack of access uh, to finance um, and perhaps also access to skills as well here. So it's, it's a more general problem of, of missing single markets. But I think an important point to make is that the power of digital is not just only in the digital sector itself. For the economy, what matters also is the use of digital technologies uh, here and the adoption of digital technologies in other uh, sectors here. But there, um, also there we see that Europe is, is, is struggling with the optimal use of digital technologies in other sectors here. If we take a look at the innovation frontier in digital using sectors, it really depends on whether um, the, the, the EU firms were able to take on board these digital technologies. If you look at, for instance, Biopharma, there we do see high concentration on, on, on really top players big players, which remains pretty stable over time. And these incumbent firms have been indeed able to, to take up this challenge of bioinformatics, at least it seems so in, uh, for the moment, mostly also by taking over uh, small startup companies in this area here. So in biopharma, the, the incumbent, the large incumbent firms did manage to address this potential creative destruction challenge of digital technologies here. In other sectors, it's still pretty unclear. For instance, if you look at cars, uh, there the jury is still out. I think the, the big challenge is still to come in terms of the use of digital uh, with autonomous uh, or electric vehicles here. And the question is whether, and this is a very important sector for the EU uh, innovation system here, whether our incumbent uh, car manufacturers will be able to address these digital challenges here. Uh, there are some new players uh, around uh, here for the moment. They have not yet been able to challenge sufficiently the large incumbents here, but I think that's a really important test for the EU to see whether we can uh, deal with that uh, digital challenge in, in, in cars here. But it's not only for this, this innovation frontier in the digital uh, using sectors, as already said, I think adoption of, of digital technologies is very important for economic growth. And it's also adoption at the non-frontier here by uh, SMEs typically, uh, companies that are not frontier. 
But also there we see that actually in Europe there is a problem of, of our uh, traditional companies not sufficiently adopting these technologies to catch up. Um, and that's not only in, in, our, in, in our incumbent SMEs, which are not, not quickly enough taking up these digital technologies, but what we also see is a lot of new firms starting up in these sectors here, also not really at the frontier of using the latest new technologies here. So again, we're missing a bit this force of, of new entry with the latest technologies as a, as a force for, for change uh, here. Uh, replacing the old and, 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 and can indeed uh, grow to, to a larger critical scale. And again, the question is why, and I think, so here it's not the digital single market, but it's a single market in general in these sectors which, which uh, takes away the incentives for uh, investing uh, in, in the new technologies, latest technologies here. But again, it's more than just a single market. Um, <coughs> it's also the fact that these investments very often are less effective because these firms are lacking absorptive capacity. They not always are have the necessary skills to know what kind of digital technologies and how to use them and turn them into profits. So I think a very critical um, issue for addressing why we are not sufficiently adopting um, the, these latest technologies is indeed access to the skills uh, in the companies uh, here. So that's why the skill agenda I think is very important. And again, a, a single market for these kind of skills I think would definitely um, help the adoption process here. I would like to, to finish if I have two more minutes um, on, on artificial intelligence, the issue that, that Lee actually mentioned. So this is uh, the next steps change in, in dig digital, the next creative destruction wave. And I think it's a good test to see how that will play out, who will be the winners um, with this new wave here. Will it create room for uh, new winners and then hopefully some new European firms uh, winning in the artificial intelligence race? Or will it, on, on, um, on the other hand, just re again reinforce the already existing winners, will they have uh, an, uh, an advantage in, in winning in the next uh, AI uh, game? And I think the evidence so far is certainly within AI that, again, it's US and, and particularly also China, which are really making very strong inroads in this sec sector here, and <coughs> that Europe um, will definitely, uh, it's not so easy to, to win in this game here. And I think a big advantage that we are missing uh, here uh, is the fact that uh, we don't have access to companies that have access to big data. That's a very strong advantage for artificial intelligence, for having uh, better AI uh, algorithms to, to be able to develop and attract also the AI talents uh, here. So in that respect, I think the fact that we were missing this, this generation of companies that, that are strong network players here will give us also a disadvantage in, in artificial intelligence here. Um, and again, I think the whole issue with, with uh, AI is really who's able to, to recruit the people that not just can only develop the AI algorithms, but can also apply these AI algorithms uh, in adoption here. So again, the whole AI revolution is, I, I think, critically about skills. Uh, Thank you. Uh, thank you, Renilda. I think you made lots of uh, interesting uh, points. Let, let me also pose you a, a question uh, that comes to, to, to my mind. When you compare, uh, as you did uh, several times, the, um, the EU or Europe uh, to the US and, uh, and China, and, and I think rightly, uh, rightly so. Um, now, 
I mean, a, a question I've been asking myself for a long, long time, uh, and I say, when I say a long, long time, uh, I would say 30 years. Um, and why 30 years since the start of the single market? Now, um, what we have been doing, and, and I mean, today's seminar is about the digital single market, but it's about the single market, right? It's one of the phases or one of the manifestations of the, the, the single market. Um, the single market is, in a sense, about fragmentation, removing certain fragmentation, the uh, distortions that come from certain government uh, uh, action, and on which, obviously, firms can act, and firms themselves seek to fragment uh, market, uh, you know, to prevent uh, new players to come in, and you talked about the, the incumbents and the, the new players. But I think we always knew that uh, Europe, the European Union, can never be as integrated a market as we were then talking about the US, and today we can compare it also to, to, to China. And even though, obviously, both in the US and in China, there are barriers, government barriers, that fragment market, okay? And they also, you know, in China also, the, uh, a single market is not fully existing. And in the US, there are also various fragmentation. But there is a element which exists both in the US and in China, but not in the EU, which is a single language. Um, and language is also language and culture. I mean, everything that comes with that, uh, those are, let's say, natural fragmentation. And the question that I wonder, uh, and that I, I just put on your, on your laps, is, you know, as we were talking 30 years ago on Manufacturing. Okay, there you can see that the role of language and cultural fragmentation is less of a problem. So if you remove a number of barriers, uh, well, okay, and you know, then we had, let's say, German companies today, they can organize themselves pan European, right? You organize themselves with Slovakia, with this and that. You don't need to speak the same language to have the different parts and to have take advantage of the single market. But when one is entering into these issues of digital, uh, except the elements of the digital that enters into manufacturing, okay? And there we see European firms are doing very well right? in integrating the digital, the digital uh, innovations into the manufacturing of whatever cars or chemicals or whatever product. So where we have manufacturing strength, we can use the digital, and th there's no problem really of digital single market. Where there is a problem is into new avenues that are entirely digital, that are not embodied into ultimately uh, manufacturing uh, activities. And I wonder whether there the natural fragmentation that comes from uh, language, culture, etc., is not a huge barrier that is really a, a major, major uh, drawback for uh, European companies to scale up. What do you think? <laughs> so now <laughs> you expect me to <laughs> solve your 30-year conundrum. <laughs> okay, so um, 
the, the fragmentation at the heart of, of a lack of a single market, um, is that coming from language and culture? I, I, of course, it's a part of it, but I think it's, it's, it's more than, it's not enough. So language... In the digital. In the, that's what and, I'm, and particularly about, in the digital. I'm talking about the digital. Yeah, so particularly in the digital, I think language can very quickly be, be overcome here. Um, so what's really, I think, still a driver of the lack of a digital single market is, is uh, this notion that um, we can actually protect our own players in our own regional area uh, with specific uh, support here. So it's not really still believing that the critical scale of the EU market could actually be better than um, having a stronger protection in a local market uh, here. So I think it's not language and culture. I think it's really still a lack of, of vision of that this critical uh, EU scale is really more important than, than a national level here. But I think what what's also a bit uh, keeping us back is this, this, particularly for digital, which is, like you say, it's, it's really an, a very drastic change here, is also, in general, I think, in, in the EU, and at all in many EU countries, uh, still this, um, so we want to we be innovative, but it's much more with incremental uh, improvements here, and as soon as it becomes really a step change, a, a radical uh, disruption here, that's a kind of step that's typically um, much more difficult to do in many EU countries uh, here. So, And that's okay. partly also because if we are still very fragmented, it's much more risky to take risky decisions uh, here. So that's really okay, important. so you're more optimistic than me, which is good. Uh, you're more optimistic than me in a sense that, uh, again, to make the comparison with the US and with the China, uh, let's say Amazon and Alibaba, uh, so you think that there is nothing, in a sense, intrinsic in the cultural fragmentation, which is, in a sense, the beauty of Europe, right? The beauty of Europe is, you know, or unity with diversity, and, you know, we cross the border and we go to different cultures and different food and all of those things. It's great, you know, we love our, our diversity and we cherish it. Uh, but you don't think that, uh, you know, there is anything intrinsic uh, that relates to that, to the fact that uh, there is not a European uh, Amazon or Alibaba or whatever the next generation. It's just uh, a question of uh, the right, uh, the right policy. <coughs> yep. Okay, no, that's 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 perfectly perfectly fine. So let me now turn to uh, Andrew uh, Andrew Wyckoff from uh, from the OECD, the Director of uh, Science and uh, and Technology and Innovation. And uh, nice to have OECD bring the vastness of its membership, uh, not yet China, but uh, certainly Europe, uh, certainly uh, Japan, certainly the United States, and a number of emerging, important uh, emerging economies, but watching over also some of the large uh, countries that are also emerging, not yet members of the OECD, but with which OECD has a structured uh, partnership. So, Andrew, uh, please bring us your global vision. I'll also bring you a different accent uh, than what you've heard today. Um, let me just thank you for, for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, the OECD is a little bit unique, partly because of the membership, but partly because we cover almost every policy area under one relatively small roof uh, in one headquarters in Paris. 
And we're in the midst of doing a very large project called Going Digital, which involves, it's exactly where Reinhold was, looking across the economy, less about the ICT sector, more about the barriers to take up and some of the lessons to be learned from one sector that you may be able to cross-fertilize into another. We're two-thirds of the way through that. I didn't raise my hand when you ask, is it something really different? Partly because I've been looking at this for a very long time, and, and it's hard to know when you're in the middle of it. Um, and you look back and just, you know, who would have guessed the PC? Certainly not IBM, who gave it away, right? Um, uh, I would say there's three things that are different with what's going on that are disruptive and have to be attentive to. The first is, and that's where uh, Oliver was a little bit with the second half of the chessboard, we now have a network that encompasses close to half the population of the globe on it. We've never seen that before. It's a network of networks, but this gives us a reach to go viral. Uh, and if you look at Metcalf's law, it's n squared. It's exponential, the value of each new user, rather than just linear. The second thing is this device, the smartphone. It's for marketing reasons. We call it a phone. It's a computer. Um, and a lot of us use it more for the computing side than the phone side. And it ushers in the, the era of ubiquitous computing which we'd never seen before. And it vastly reduces and rearranges the transaction costs to allow an Uber-type uh, business model where an individual in need of a ride can find someone offering a ride through an intermediary that we've never seen before. And that, that too, is big. And it throws off, and we've been talking about it all day, a lot of data. And it's just the beginning. You ain't seen nothing yet, OK? We're moving into a connected everything, particularly automobiles, and just the connected Chevrolet um, throws off now 600 terabytes a quarter, right? And that's just one car in one company. And so we're moving in this new era of data where I actually think it's a, almost a new factor of production, akin to capital and labor, complementary, but we don't really know how to treat it yet in the economics profession, I don't think. So is it disruptive? Yeah, but I, I'm right here as well. There are really leaps and lags of adoption. It's very different. I mean, so there's some parts of the economy that are taking it up very quickly, a real minority, and then others that are really lagging uh, behind, and this makes it hard. I, I want to point to one study that's out of the OECD on long-haul trucking that's really kind of the tip of the spear on what AI may look like. I think. It'll be one of the first sectors that go, because the cost advantages are a 30% savings. And, and, and here's a sector where we have a shortage of, of drivers. So it's, but what's interesting is it, it's not linear. It's a tipping model all at once. If you don't adopt this technology, you're out of business. And so I don't know if policymakers are, are used to being able to deal with something that happens uh, that quickly. I want to move to um, some of these disruptive elements particularly data, we find are hard for incumbents to figure out. It's hard for them. A lot of their data in big multinationals is siloed still. It's hard to get it to go across the company so they can really take advantage of it. As Ryan Hilda said as well, it's hard for SMEs, established SMEs. A lot of them lack the skill base, and these skills are in high demand. They're really being bid away. 
Um, and so it, it's hard, and so f there, that's where the disruptive entrants, the new startups, I think, are particularly important um, and can, uh, I think, uh, have an easier time with this new uh, business model. Um, there's lots of talk, and bad news sells, okay? I worked in, on U.S. Congress for 10, you can't move any legislation without bad news story. But I think we tend to forget that all the good news that's coming with the digital transformation. And I just think it's good to keep that in perspective. And we need almost a forward vision that we're aiming to, to try to achieve and not get overly distracted along. I'm just amazed when I travel to poorer parts of the OECD, Mexico being not a bad example, tremendous reforms on telecom, going back to the earlier conversation here today, a drop in prices by a factor of five, factor of three, and a factor of two. Fifty million new global, uh, fifty million new mobile subscribers in the span of five years. Okay, and that's huge, and it's brought a lot of benefit to that country. Uh, a lot more information, a lot more access to banking and to government services, and so forth. And I think we tend to maybe forget that. Let me move to what I think has been a, a conversation. Um, across this panel that I want to touch on, and that is some of the challenges uh, coming forward. Uh, there's the nature of firms. We're seeing a new type of firm that uh, is difficult because it's what Eric Brynjolfsson would call scale without mass. You can go globally without leaving a geographic footprint. And that is hard for a lot of our policies to adjust to that are based on a uh, tangible kind of automobile sector mindset, where if you want to exp expand your production from Europe to the United States, you put down a branch plant, and that gives you sovereignty and nexus, and you're exposed to the laws of that country. It's different now. Um, it also reduces the, uh, some of us may have studied this in graduate school, Coase's work on transaction costs and the theory of the firm and why you have hierarchies the way you do. Well, a lot of those information flows that made up that hierarchy have been disrupted. So there's less of a need for that hierarchical and much more of a mesh type firm, and Google's not a bad example here, which is uh, uh, much more flat, flat and flexible. And again, this works to make it hard sometimes to organize labor. Um, wouldn't mind coming back to that. I have an idea for you. Um, then there's the changing nature of capital. A lot of us in this room know that productivity is the huge driver of standards of living. And we, we analyze the hell out of data, try to figure out how do we get productivity gains. Um, and we look at human capital. We look, also look at tangible capital. What's causing me to stay up at night lately is just the changing nature of that capital. Because A, a lot of it's more intangibles, which we know we don't pick up very well in our measurements. But B, a lot of it's more shared capital. You're seeing a changing business models. Rolls-Royce is a good example here, where they don't sell the engine anymore. They sell the service around the engine, which is studded with sensors and, and uh, data flows to give it a tremendous knowledge about the maintenance of that, uh, the performance of it, and really to optimize it. But it means that that capital investment that Airbus used to make isn't happening. And you see it now with tractors and particularly with computer equipment as the cloud comes. 
And it raises some interesting questions about our <coughs> productivity measures, because if you are a Danish entrepreneur using Amazon Web Services Cloud, you're going to Ireland for that service. And so there's a, sorry, just an accounting issue here. And then um, comes to productivity, um, and you would expect this gush of productivity. We aren't seeing it. There's a new productivity paradox, and one answer uh, my colleagues and I would suggest is that there's been a bifurcation of productivity. Some firms at the frontier get it, are doing very well, and are pulling away, uh, leaving a growing wedge with the vast majority of firms that are still struggling to try to figure this out. And there's a good question here about why is that? One of the answers I would put forward is what I would call combinatorial innovations. You learn big data, then you learn machine learning, and then you learn to use that for AI applications, and it's hard to jump. I mean, you have to go up that learning curve, which is hard and expensive. I'm coming to the end of my time. Let me talk about employment. Uh, my colleagues at the OECD uh, I uh, have been working on this. We have our own estimates of those at high risk at 14%, very close to McKinsey Global Institutes. Um, we add in additional 30% at significant risk. That's a big number when you add it up across the OECD. And so it comes back to what we've been talking about, about the training challenge, maybe of a magnitude that we've rarely seen before, but not never. I mean, but rare, rarely. Uh, and there's a question, how do you pay for it? How do you do it? Uh, I challenge anyone to show me a good lifelong learning model that works. But um, uh, there are countries out there, Sweden and the Nordics in, in particular. How do you make it effective? And then I want to bring up and maybe end here with the inconvenient truth that uh, by our PIAC numbers, Two-thirds of the current labor force lacks the skills to work in a technology-rich, <coughs> problem-solving environment. Two-thirds now. So there's a question on how much <coughs> training is really going to help you solve the problem. And I think there's some limits, maybe, and we need to think about a plan B should those training options not work. Because some of the people that would be affected, as we've talked about, the middle and the low skilled, didn't like school in the first place. <laughs> and they're not going to be so keen going back, particularly if it's on their own, online. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, fascinating. The, the, last, uh, the last words were not particularly uh, reassuring. Um, and maybe if you link it back to your home country. Um, Explain some of the. Um, My home is in France. I just want to. Okay, uh, some of your original, some of your original home uh, country. Uh, maybe explain some of the difficulties and maybe the maybe training is not like in Sweden and uh, different areas of the country uh, are subject to certain difficulties. And I mean, I think. It, it does raise, I don't think this is the, 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 the subject of this, of this panel, but I, I don't think that one can stay away, obviously, from that. It's, you know, the implication, the broader implication, uh, you know, besides all the, the, nice, uh, the nice part, and we all enjoy, uh, all of us, right, in this room, uh, we enjoy the, uh, the fruits 
of the uh, of the innovation, and we live. I think our lives. I think all of us who are here. Our lives are certainly made uh, much easier and much more pleasant in a way by the uh, new technologies and by the fact that we can work from anywhere and you know whether you know you're going back on the train tonight to Paris and you can continue to work as if you know you're in the office and all of those kind of things it's 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 great but obviously it's not true for every kind of uh, of, uh, of of worker and uh, as you said there, there are the limits of uh, of of, uh, of training and you know what uh, what we have in mind so let me first ask the uh, panelists, and you know, having thanked all of you for your great contribution, let me first ask the panelists whether they want to uh, react in any way to what has been said before. Uh, Lee, is, is there something that you want to, since you were the first, you want to react to what some of the others have said uh, afterwards? So, so. I think that there were so many different uh, wonderful nuggets of <laughs> of uh, of information shared that you know I I I don't know really uh, where where to start. So I would uh, you know I would would leave it open you know, to uh, okay. to maybe the people in the room to ask questions and. Okay, uh, Oliver, I just want to you know, give everybody a little chance okay. to, um, to pick up on something. Two points really. First on Andrew. Um, when we look at uh, the skills of society, um, one of the possibilities is we all get now our technical skills and then it becomes all somehow good. And I think there the best way for me is really doing it as close to everyday work. I mean, lifelong learning actually has to be part of your everyday work day. I think that's the only way forward. But I don't know whether this works because it hasn't really worked yet, but there wasn't a need there. The second point, I think, um, you know, low-skilled, uh, medium-skilled uh, is also a question of societal convention. Uh, when we look, for instance, as kindergarten teachers in Germany, at nurses, uh, probably in terms of the value they add to society, they're totally underpaid. So there's a question also, I mean, how to basically help the middle class or the middle level of income just having a new convention in society saying, a nurse is underpaid, somebody who is a teacher or a kindergarten teacher actually needs to get more money and somehow we have to come up with the money. And then the third a bit controversial is Ryan Hilder's uh, point about that Europe doesn't have big data, and I'm just half joking, doesn't have big data and this basically puts us in a competitive disadvantage. So I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, are you suggesting in terms of Europe, Google should basically be split and there should be a European Google which is separate from the American one? <laughs> Just joking. I wanted to react to Andrew, but now I have to react <laughs> you too. So um, what, what you mentioned, that there is less this hierarchical firm and we work, will be working more within a network structure and more with shared <coughs> capital. Um, indeed, and you would, you would think that would create room for new, more smaller players uh, to, to be viable in these networks. But again, all that sharing and the networks really requires that we will be using digital technologies to, to, to make these networks effective. And so again, it's all about are companies sufficiently adopting the digital technologies to allow that networked uh, economy uh, here? Um, so again, it uh, depends on, on, on how good we're taking up the digital uh, technology here. I was really uh, scared by your two-thirds of, um, uh, in your PIC results, two-thirds 
that would be lacking the skills to really work with the latest technologies. That's really scaring. Um, but I'd still like to remain optimistic on this. And I think that's just a challenge for the technology developers uh, then to make their uh, latest new technologies much more user-friendly for adopting, taking into account the skills that we, we have. For instance, if you think of Python, it's a very simple way of, of, of using. So I think there should also be a bit more, hopefully a bit more push on the technology developers to make the technologies friendly for adopting for uh, larger uh, audience here, and then do we need to split up uh, Google here? I think we just need to make to, to make sure that our EU companies also understand the power of the big data that they have and uh, are able to use and turn that into uh, into competitive advantage. Uh, here. Maybe I can quickly react. <laughs> um, so, so I, I think what is important here is to look at a few fundamental. Uh, Principles and the first one that I would like um, to um, to mention is, you know, technology should be there for everyone. So picking up Renilde's point, like you know, it should be user friendly. People should be able to uh, to you know to understand the technology that they are working uh, with. For us, that's one of the essential values. And how are we doing this? Is by making sure that. The, the, the people at Google, the engineers, everybody that is involved in product uh, development and, and uh, development of, of, of the different services have different backgrounds to make sure that the technology that you make is inclusive and is reflective of the differences that, that you, 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 you see uh, in society. So being uh, there as a, as a player for everyone is, is important, which also means here in Europe, partnership partnership um, with, with all the different actors in society. Um, and I mentioned training before because uh, there, there is, a, a, as everybody recognizes, there is an obvious uh, digital skills gap. And there I think it's, it's again an idea of partnership to make sure that together the different actors, academia in their curricula, uh, private firms uh, like ours and, and, and policymakers together address this, this, uh, this, this training uh, challenge. What we did, for instance, was we made in 2015 a digital pledge uh, to, to say that, okay, we see that there is this huge uh, gap. One thing is that you can sit back and not do anything, but our eagerness was to say, okay, let's go for one million uh, people trained in digital skills, uh, we said in 2015. Now, the demand was enormous, so we're now today already at three million. And what is very important here is to pick up also some of the comments that, for instance, uh, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Andrew that was making it. Um, it's tailor-made. Nobody really likes to learn. So you know, make sure that you know you go out or to to small and medium enterprises. You know, to to give the digital skills training, not a boring one online if you don't like that. But you know, to really go into workshops, uh, workshops and and specific advice. So the idea was to especially. Uh, go to specific groups like small and medium enterprises that are missing today uh, uh, certain digital, digital knowledge and to make sure that together in partnership you can acquire those uh, skills and grow your business. And then the last value that I, I, I want to uh, address uh, it has, uh, in, in this context is the value of openness. 
open instead of closed. So we, we very much believe in, in, in an open ecosystem. And, and AI shouldn't be the privilege of a few engineers somewhere in Mountain View. I think that's why the philosophy of the company was to have open source uh, AI so that what Renilde was saying, that it takes a lot of time to acquire the knowledge on AI, that you can have it pretty fast and that you know, there are crash courses now and, and scholarships you know, out there. We work with universities on, on curricula to make sure that you know, it becomes something that you really can, can acquire uh, much more uh, in, a, in a faster way. So this whole idea of openness and sharing your uh, research, including uh, data sets, you know, to make sure that you know, your machine learning program goes you know, faster in terms of, of learning uh, the, the problem uh, at stake. I think that idea is very important. Thanks. Andrew, you want to? May I? Please? Yeah, I'll, I'll be fast. Uh, three quick points on the skills and lifelong learning. I'm right there with you, Oliver, about um, it needs to be made part of it. But I, again, I want to bring up just a fact from PIAC that right now, the vast majority of training expenditures go to the high-skilled, like those of us in this room. They don't go to the low-skilled. And there's a question, how to change businesses. And they do it for a reason. Um, I mean, it's, it's a business decision. On, on AI and low-skill, Oliver, again, I I'm really like that idea. How do you begin to apply this to, place, to jobs like nurses or teachers um, uh, to uh, augment them maybe with more technology and then raise their wages. And I think there's an interesting experiment going on here in Japan uh, where it's that they're desperate for AI. They have a real sh aging population, a shortage, uh, a, a labor force that's, that's tumbling, and they want to bring in tech to, to try to help. It'll be interesting to see if it leads to increase in wages or not. Um, and then the, uh, I would defend the fact, I think EU does have big data. And President Macron's AI strategy begins to point to this. And I just want to, I think that's a clever, he's pointing to the health data of France, because we have a welfare health delivery system. Uh, it goes back through ages. It's a big population, and that gives you a, a, a training ground for AI we haven't really uh, had before. Very good. So we have uh, about 15 uh, minutes. So time to open the, the floor for, for questions. Yes. Let's take a few, uh, a few questions first round. Yes. Hi. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Sandro Janella. I work on public policy for a company called uh, Stripe. Uh, we're a software company out of San Francisco. I wanted to get to a point. Um, that Reinhilde made, and you described very well sort of the, almost the tension between uh, incumbents and sort of newcomers that are coming in, and the fact that in your study you saw that Europeans tend to not do as well with the scale-ups. You also made a brief comment about the digital single market, and given that's what we're here to talk about, I wonder, do you think the digital <coughs> single market would look differently if that, if that fact would not be there? In other words, do you see regulatory capture by incumbents and the way that the digital single market is being pushed in Brussels, and is there a theory to be made um, that the ideas that would have been brought forward by some of these new players, by companies that look differently at these kind of technologies, would lead to different policy making? Thanks. Okay, another question there at the 
Yes. Carl. My, my name is Carl Pichelmann. I'm yes. with the European Commission. Good to see you uh, with the light. <laughs> um, my, my question would be, I guess, for Mr. Wyckoff, I mean, because he raised the, uh, say, the, 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 the productivity puzzle, uh, and that we see the disruptive nature of technology everywhere to quip solo, uh, but in the productivity statistics. Uh, and uh, uh, now one of the explanations put forward, I mean, is this bifurcation, I mean, in, uh, in, in productivity growth between the frontier firms and, uh, and the vast majority of laggards. Uh, now, uh, if we buy this explanation, uh, I mean, what would be the implication for the future of productivity trends? I mean, is this a persistent bifurcation? Uh, and therefore, I mean, we would be, well, say, I mean, less pessimistic with respect to, to future more rapid productivity growth, uh, or do you see this as a, just a temporary phenomenon? Good question, Carl. Jorgis? Google. Uh, in a few days, the European Commission is going to announce its communication strategy for AI. As experts uh, with different background and different faction, what do you hope to find there? <laughs> Another question? Yes, sorry. Yeah, thank you. Antonio Garcia de Rioco, Banco Santander. A uh, quick question to Andrew Wickhoff. Um, you refer to the importance of intangible assets um, and how intangible are becoming even more important uh, than before. Uh, well, today we have, I have to, to, to relate to a situation that the European financial sector is in today, which is basically the fact that the current legislation doesn't incentivize the investment in technology and not in software, uh, which is you know, something that um, uh, is a little bit difficult to understand, given the fact that um, uh, the European financial sector is bound to, to become more digital and to invest more, more digital, to invest in more digital. Well, my point is, this is a situation today, um, this happens to European banks, not to, to, not to American banks, which open again another issue, issue of level playing field. Um, and this asks for a clear change in the current regulation. In the, in the current, le yeah, current legislation. Thank you. One uh, last question. No? Okay, if there's no question at, oh, sorry. Yes, okay. please, that's perfect. Uh, Claudia Bernotti from China U. Uh, we are a Brussels-based association that uh, fosters cooperation between Europe and China on digital issues. So I see during the panel that China was mentioned many times, and I'm very glad, uh, of course, given my background to hear that. And so my question for pretty much all of you would be, uh, do you think that Europe, I mean, not just the institutions, but also governments and the companies can learn from any of the best practices that lead China to the level they are now in digital innovation? And here I'm talking about the speed at which certain digital technologies are being adopted by the population and rolled out in the, in the economy. So, of course, artificial intelligence solutions, uh, online payments, um, sharing economy solutions, and so on. Uh, there are many articles uh, being now written on The Economist, uh, Wall Street Journal, a bit everywhere about even the Silicon Valley starting to copy uh, China as being the new business model almost. 
So yeah, my question is, uh, is there anything that we can learn, uh, also maybe from the regulatory point of view, so like let innovation strive first and regulate afterwards? Uh, so yeah, that's what Okay, a good question too. So I suggest we go back to uh, to the panel. I'll let uh, panelists pick on you know what uh, what they wish from the uh, from the good questions, and I suggest we go in uh, reverse order from uh, the original intervention. So we start with uh, Andrew. Thank you, uh, and just um, on the productivity paradox, I think it's a great question. Unfortunately, I don't have a great answer yet. Um, we hope to. We're, we're working on it. Uh, will it be worse in, in the future? I think it's the two-handed economist. There's the yes and the no. So the, the yes is this kind of pointing to the combinatorial innovation where it's really hard to catch up. And so one builds on, on, on the other. Um, the no is maybe this is just a classic S curve diffusion, and we're just at that beginning point where a few firms get it and the rest don't, and hopefully it will trickle down. And I think there's some reasons to be optimistic there. And the third thing, which I just don't know, is these firms at the frontier are very uh, intellectual property heavy. And so they have different policies uh, that may be affecting the diffusion of their good ideas than maybe what we've seen in the past. I just let that hang as a question mark. The AI communication, that's why I snuck out at lunchtime. I'm trying to figure out. Uh, so one thing I'm looking for, lots of euros. Google, supposedly, uh, estimate I saw, spends close to 20 billion. I'm looking at Google. Um, Mr. Macron announced 1.5, to give you a comparison. Um, my, my last thing, I don't know much about the financial sector, my regrets about the banking law. I am aware that it's not uncommon in the United States, at least in Silicon Valley, if you have a patent, that's recognized as an asset and, and actually is a, it's important for getting more venture capital, second and third stage, and I suspect that's not the case here. So. On this very difficult question on how the digital single market would look like if we would have more uh, young players rather than incumbents, um, and whether the regulation would be a bit captured by the incumbents, I think that's a fair question, uh, particularly because in Europe our whole process of uh, designing regulations involves quite a lot of stakeholder consultations and then stakeholders are the current players and not uh, the future players. So I'm, I'm even more concerned not, not just on the fact that the current young firms are not represented but even the future young firms. Um, so that's why I think it's very important that uh, when we are designing regulation, we should make that as much as possible innovation friendly. That's what we are trying to do here and to make to design it in such a way that it keeps open. Uh, it's not too specific for, for specific technologies, which are very often the current technologies here, but it keeps the regulation is sufficiently open that it allows for also uh, new technological developments. But in practice, it's very hard uh, to, to get that uh, right. Um, on the question on, on China and artificial intelligence and, and 
what explains the success of China and what could we learn from, from that. Of course, China has a, a big advantage of having a big market in terms of skills. Uh, it's incredible how many engineers, uh, particularly focused on science and engineering and in artificial intelligence, are being trained there. These are massive uh, numbers. Um, uh, of course, they also have the advantage that uh, they didn't have incumbent players and that they can really jump immediately on, on that new technology here. And there is also, I mean, they do also have big data in that market uh, here and uh, particularly also want to use those big data. And it's not just only the companies, also the Chinese government definitely wants to use the big data for only to control all the different networks here. So there is a lot of supply of skills and a lot of demand for artificial intelligence here. So lots of uh, things to, um, and I'm not sure we can actually learn from uh, from China uh, here. Uh, I'd just like to come back on this, uh, the EU has data or not. Of course, we have data we also have a single we also have a large market but <laughs> the question is do we use it to capture value from it that's a bit the question and the example that you gave actually on, on these health data it is a very good example of how if countries are thinking about the use of health data it's still very much nationally driven here and it's not at the EU level here so You're right. yeah. <laughs> Oliver just on health data I mean what we see in that sector now as well, that the multinational companies are getting in there. And then you actually might have a, a solution to this because they will have, then have access to German, French, and whatever data. Um, just on AI, in terms of the communication, I mean, first my point is, everybody is now talking about AI, which is important. But I think before we actually talk about AI, what digitalization brings to us, there's still so many open questions. And I'm sometimes afraid we're starting to discuss AI rather than having uh, laid the groundwork. And I think that is also a bit of a danger uh, with the Commission that we move already to the next step before actually having done the previous one. Um, more concretely, I think money is a key point, and money in particular in how do we organize uh, the link up with uh, human skills and human jobs. That is the key point. I mean, it's not about IT and having algorithms or so. It's how bring it back to the workforce as such. Uh, from a trade union side, which is probably a bit further uh, removed, is what does it mean for workers' rights and your ability to actually work? I mean, if the algorithm tells you to do something and you do it, is it your fault? Is it the fault of the algorithm, your employer, or whoever? All those uh, those problems. And then one of the key points um, uh, bit, sounded a bit like uh, using digital tools or AI is only something for people who went to university and everybody else is daft. I just exaggerate. We are organizing industrial cleaners and in future they will go around with a tablet and they have to interact with the tablet to know how they have to clean, which will be much more effective and will actually raise their individual productivity uh, enormously. So actually all those digital skills, I mean, they are also helpful for the lower skilled and I actually don't uh, think that low-skilled uh, people actually can't profit from it. I mean, we have rather a problem with our learning training structures that uh, if you're not going to university, you don't get the same uh, attention and resources to actually develop the skills you're having. And I think that is a problem in future, especially if the middle skill uh, breaks away and then you, as you were saying, uh, all the lifelong learning training goes to the people who had university education already or at the top of, let's say, the salary range. And I think there has to be a fundamental change because otherwise I think the system doesn't uh, work properly. Certainly not in Europe. If you look at India where um, new students are just popping out of university like this, 
I mean, then you can throw out your old workforce and bring in the new. That might be possible there, but it's certainly not possible here in Europe. Thank you. So uh, maybe first picking up on Sandro's uh, uh, question, how would uh, the DSM would have looked like uh, if, if it was very much driven by app developers and uh, startup uh, communities? And, and I think we have very, a very good voice of startups and, and app developers here in Brussels. Maybe the voice is not always heard, uh, but, but I think the enormous drive of that community and regulatory inno innovative ideas with a, a, a wonderful manifesto of the startup community of what good looks like and how to create this digital single market. This is really top-notch uh, work, and, and I know that uh, the different legislators are very inspired by it, but I would say be even more inspired to, you know, by, by those really uh, forward-looking uh, actors here in Brussels. We, we have the biggest um, app developers community in, uh, in the world, with 1.9 app developers uh, based in Europe. It's, it's the, the, the most important uh, app developers community. So, you know, giving them a voice to make sure that there is a DSM that can create the opportunity, I think, is, is important. Then I would like to, uh, to come back to George's on, on uh, artificial intelligence and the communication that is uh, going to come out um, very, very soon. I think it's good to have a conversation and a dialogue between the different uh, players um, around the table from now onwards. I agree with Oliver that you, know, you need a step-by-step -step approach. You need digital basic skills. You need a bit of coding skills. And then you, you also you know, need to adapt to more sophisticated elements like AI. So let's start to have the conversation. I think th that's very good. So we're hoping on, uh, to see an, an open, innovation-friendly uh, 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 set, set of recommendations. And there were many uh, leaked drafts. And, and I think those were showing this, this openness to say, let's first understand and then see what regulatory tools are needed. And let's first look at the existing tools, for instance, around uh, liability that was mentioned by, by one of my colleagues here earlier and see how you can adopt existing legislation to something uh, like AI. I think we shouldn't see AI also as one word and, and one uh, basic reality, but it's a very sophisticated uh, and, and differentiated reality. And I think we should have a, a sophisticated and different uh, views depending on, on, on the application of it. Um, one element that is very important, why I think communication is good, is that it's all about trust. It's trust of the users in the future that will use AI uh, in, in, in their phones, uh, and it's, it's existing already today, but it's also trust of the workers in AI, it's trust of society in AI. And therefore, bringing different voices together to discuss liability elements, to discuss how does a human-centered AI, AI looks like, which we in our company find very important. There is a human at the beginning, then you have machine learning, a human at, at the end. I think those discussions are 
absolutely crucial to to make sure that you know you 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 have this user trust and this you have to do uh, in 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 partnership and then the last dimension I think is is around uh, as discussed before is around making sure that we offer as a society also the necessary education that nobody is lacking behind um, so that would be in a nutshell what I hope to see but I'm you know I'm I'm very hopeful to see what's coming out uh, uh, on Thursday. Thank you. So I, th I think we had a very, uh, very good discussion. Uh, I think we covered uh, many of the facets uh, of the uh, of the issue. Uh, I think there is. I think all four of you uh, did uh, agree explicitly or implicitly uh, that this is disruptive, uh, but not necessarily bad disruption. Uh, obviously, but uh, this is. Uh, major change uh, from that viewpoint uh, with all kinds of, uh, of implications and um, you know whether we are all uh, equipped uh, from a policy uh, viewpoint uh, to deal with this um, remains to remains to be seen and I, I'm sure will be uh, the topic of many uh, many discussions uh, to come so let me thank all four uh, panelists and the uh, the audience Thank you very much.